Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, we are recording for Contrarian's Corner. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. As the Contrarian summer road trip rages on, uh, my shift of driving is over, so Julio, you're going to take the wheel for a while. As, as teased in our last episode, there was a hitchhiker on the road. We are sequentially, I'm so confused at where <laughs> we're at, so uh, yeah, but I do remember at the end of Crossroads, we had teased that there was a hitchhiker that... Julio was insistent we pick up, uh, unfortunately, it's someone we know, a friend of the podcast. Yes. At, th- at first, I thought it was the enemy, <laughs> but it turns out it's not the enemy. It's just somebody that's been here before and praised uh, the enemy. Mm-hmm. You might all remember <laughs> the infamous Kevin Spacey plugs. Oh, yes. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> I just need to get it out of the way early on. So. I probably won't mention him as much this time, so you don't have to worry about it. You can it. just refer to him as Christopher Plummer if you do need to speak about Mr. him. Mr. Plummer? Yeah, that's what we did last time. That we What was it? Fred he Claus. Was... Fred Claus, yeah. yeah. Is it because he lost that role? <laughs> no, well, yeah, because uh, Christopher Plummer replaced him. <laughs> Yeah, he really did. Wow. Yeah, he didn't lose the role. He, he, he was replaced. He yeah. was replaced. He was forced out. <laughs> yes. But Kinsey is back on the podcast. Kinsey, how are you doing this evening? I'm well. How are y'all? Doing good. Just sat through another Cameron Crowe movie here on the podcast. Not right. taking us to the dizzying highs of the 2005 classic Elizabethtown. Oh, my God. More to the sweltering lows of the showbiz industry. We are here today to tackle Almost Famous, 2000 heralded Academy Award nominated film that was Cameron Crowe back at the plate following Jerry Maguire. Uh, Some may say a swing and a miss. However, I believe it was about 87%? 89%. 89% of the critics. So not quite at the upper echelon that we typically deal with, but here for the purposes of our road trip, definitely one of the movies we uh, classify into the fresh category. Now, if this is your first time listening to the contrarians, we appreciate your listen. Uh, and if this is your first time, just to give a quick rundown of what we do here, we like to say we rage against the rotten tomatoes machine, find a movie that's fresh and or rotten, make a case for it being the opposite. So in this case with almost famous, I'm going to bring it down a few pegs. Now get down to, I mean, there's a reason why we haven't talked about it until now. It's really not that great. When your movie's not supposed to be a comedy, but you got Jimmy Fallon out there just acting a fool. I mean, one of the many red flags. Totally in inconsistent. Trip. Oh, there red flags are plenty in this movie. Yes. But with that all being said, eighty nine percent. What are the critics saying about this, Julio? All right, got a few quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. 
starting with Philip Wunsch from Dallas Morning News, who says, Almost Famous is that rarity, a movie that's great fun to watch and even more fun in retrospect. David Sterrett from the Christian Science Monitor says, Veterans of the 1960s and 70s will find that Almost Famous captures both the raging excesses of that era and the keen-eyed alertness that allowed some savvy youngsters to survive and even profit from the scene. How old do you think David Sterrett is? <laughs> He is, in fact, William Miller. <laughs> yes. Calling everybody a youngster. And then finally, Shay Casey from Daily Reviews says, It's the mainstream film of 2000 that feels most glad to be alive. Okay. Take a while to process that one. I'll I mean, let that one simmer. Did, I, I think Gladiator was probably gladder to be alive. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Almost famous. Kinsey, coming into this, what was, uh, what was the extent of your Cameron Crowe knowledge of his filmography, because this was your first time watching this, correct? Yeah, this is my first time watching it. The only thing that I knew about him before was that he did Jerry Maguire, because I actually saw that for the first time recently, probably only a year ago, not even, maybe. It's his best movie. You don't have to bother with the rest. You just yeah. <laughs> skip. You know, I'm happy with these two movies. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm cool with them. Skip everything else but Aloha, so you can just <laughs> oh, <laughs> see the other. Oh, I didn't know he did that. Have you seen Aloha? Unfortunately. Oh, well, then there you go. You don't need anything else, then. You got well, Elizabeth Town, I can say, as we've learned from this podcast, <laughs> there's been so many bad movies that have come out since 2005. Mm. Its stock is raised by association. I had seen Elizabeth Town, and for some reason, when I was younger, my mom watched it like a lot. She watched it multiple times, and I remember when I was younger, it being like a really good movie. I was like, wow, Orlando Bloom is so cool. I just love this movie. And I go back and watch it when I'm a little older, and I was like, why did I ever entertain this you were on the orlando bloom uh, i was under a spell yeah we all were until that movie came out (laughs) it happened to all of us Uh, but for this movie we're not talking about 2005 we're not talking about elizabeth town we are traveling back to 1969 do we get a location of where william and his mother live is it California? It's San Diego, right? San Diego. Okay, I was going to say, it's not Topeka. That's all I know. <laughs> no, but Topeka, you know, the most relevant thing Topeka, Kansas has ever done is later in this movie. Uh, William Miller, an 11-year-old boy struggling to find his identity. Elaine Miller, his mother, Frances McDormand. Very similar to a lot of things that are happening in Austin right now with parents forcing their... Uh, agendas onto their children as they raise them. So I was going to say, she is... And I don't like using this term, but it's extremely appropriate in this case. Woke? No. I was going to say, she's racing <laughs> snowflakes. <laughs> uh, she's he, like the weather wizard. She skipped him ahead two grades. Or yes. she started him in first grade when he was five. So basically just accelerating his fast track and fast tracking his life and robbing him of an adolescence. But to which she states adolescence is a marketing tool. Uh, his sister played by the incomparable Zoe Deschanel. Has she been on the podcast before? Uh, I mean, I know we've had her as a guest, but... I mean, she was here hanging out <laughs> while we recorded, but no, I don't think that we've ever done a Zoe Deschanel movie. Anita Miller, his older sister, who is at constant odds with their mother. Now, Julio, having come from a different country, <laughs> is this the plight of the Peruvian family arguing about what music is allowed to be listened to and whatnot? No. Or the, did you look at this and just say, this is white people shit? I mean, the plight of the Peruvian family is budgeting so that you have enough money to eat throughout the week. Uh, so really, those those vinyl records would have been sold a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and Zoe Deschanel could just go either to school or to work and not hang out with some guy that's putting ideas in her head. But I understand culture is different, you know. 
America's a different place. What really bothered me is just that it's Zoe de Chanel and she's not playing a quirky character. So what's the point? It is a departure. I mean, you could have cast anyone in this role. Why tease me? It's kind of like when they cast, uh, just in our last two stops ago, when they cast Steve Carell in Little Miss Sunshine, mm -hmm. and we don't get... Any laughs. No, it's just, it's depressing. He tried to kill himself. And here, Zoe Deschanel is almost like the voice of reason, which she should never play. It's it's sad. Kinsey, uh, the Frances McDormand character in this, you know, I mean, Frances McDormand, describing her as intense in general would be like describing the ocean as fairly large. A bit overbearing, and I think her character is a bit overstated, uh, turned up way too high for the purposes of this uh, opening segment here. I kind of just wanted... I just want to will him to live his life. I just wanted him to go on this adventure, but his mom kept having a call. Yeah, it's almost like, him. yeah, she stops the movie. She stops Every the movie, <laughs> she pauses it, you know, you have to keep moving, and I yeah, the phone's done. It's, 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 uh, I understand that she's supposed to be the nagging mom, but she delays the beginning of the actual story, mm -hmm. and then she keeps butting in. I just wanted, I mean, we left Frances McDormand when he got on the bus and she should have just stayed behind until we came back. I appreciated the phone she calls. She should have been to, uh, Alan Arkin in uh, Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> just we start the it. road trip and then she just drops off. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to check in with Philip Seymour Hoffman because mm -hmm. he's Philip Seymour. Yeah. But you didn't need to check in with Frances McDormand. So, uh, yeah, she's, she's kind of in the way. So the upbringing is a strict one, uh, assuring almost like an Amish upbringing to the point where when William leaves and sees the excesses of the world, he's not really going to know how to handle it. Fast forward four years. He's 15. He's in high school. He's a nerd. He's writing the names of his favorite bands on his Trapper. Is that Was that a thing in Peru? That was a big thing for people. Trapper like, Keepers? Well, writing the names of bands that you like on them. Was no. That, okay. Uh, you, Kinsey, you're younger than me. Was that a thing for you? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Not. Listeners might have forgotten since Kinsey's last appearance here. There's a huge age gap. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've literally just turned 21. <laughs> okay, so I related to this because William... He has his Trapper Keeper, and he's writing, like, Led Zeppelin and the names of all his favorite bands on it. I think I had the only Trapper Keeper in Peru, and I didn't know how to use it. I hey, it's Julio! I, <laughs> he's got the Trapper Keeper! Well, I remember I could tell that it was something I was supposed to bring to school, but I couldn't tell, like, how how it worked. I mean, it's... I guess I still don't know how it works. <laughs> I had a green one, and I just remember writing, like, Green Day and Blink-182 and, like, Dr. Dre on it. But what shit. do you do it inside? I mean, it's like... Oh, you keep, like paper like it'll have a sleeve to hold like a, a legal ledger and then there's little places for like your pens and calculators and stuff so it's kind of just like a more complicated notebook correct do you know what he's talking about do you do you even know what a trapper keeper is Can i was gonna ask my next question was gonna be <laughs> what is a trapper keeper so i can like know what you guys are talking about but in general like on your school like your binders and shit you never wrote the names of bands you like that wasn't a thing anymore oh i mean yeah i feel like i okay. i had maybe like journals or something i'd be like oh she would just Make playlists on like Spotify. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I know I didn't have an iPod growing up, so I missed that phase. Kinsey did say, but... "Can we pause this? What is that big circular black thing you just put on that spinning table?" Uh, he's 15. He's a nerd, but he does write for Cream Magazine. He's not a really popular kid in school, uh, but he does have his idols very clearly laid out. Uh, most notable, uh, San Diego's own Lester Bangs, played by the iconic, one of a kind, one and only Philip Seymour Hoffman who was approximately on set for this movie maybe three hours. <laughs> yeah, but he is... He had he's... every wardrobe on at once. He could just de-layer for the next scene. Bada-bing, bada-boom. 
he is great though, and it the contrast has never been greater than when he's, he's the only character with any grounds in reality. Well, well, yeah, but also all his scenes are with our protagonist, who is so devoid of charisma that you haven't even you didn't even remember to to name him. Mm-hmm. William Patrick Fugit. Oh yeah, I mean. He's just like William, and then we just completely ignored. We we name check Francis McDormand, Zoe Deschanel, Philip Seymour, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, the 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 guy that's supposed Cam to be the from soul. Modern Family. <laughs> yes, Patrick Fugit was doing the uh, <laughs> the Sam Worthington, Jai Corney, the thing where they just suck the life out of a movie. He was doing it the way charisma before the vacuum. But yeah, <laughs> he's he's just like a black hole, and he shows up. And I just don't know, does he, does he get cast because he looks like Cameron Crowe when he was a kid? Is that, is you know, that how he got the job? I think if you need someone to make Paul Dano look physically imposing, you cast Patrick Fugit. <laughs> it's just, a road trip, after all. You come across some weird and crazy characters. Patrick Fugit, bad dang. I mean, I don't know if he's, I don't know what he looks like now. <laughs> fucking jacked. <laughs> he's into MMA now and just... He's going to be in Hobbs and Shaw. He's one of the henchmen. <laughs> but he meets with Lester Banks, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who... Becomes a mentor of sorts and tells him to be honest and un- unmerciful and that, you know, these people are going to pretend like you're they're your friend, but they're not. You need to, you know, have your artistic integrity. But even then, he's Lester Bangs is kind of a loser, too, because. But he knows that, too. He admits it. He's like, I stay home. I'm a loser. You stay home. You're a loser. We're not cool, he says. So he's just telling kids, it's OK to it's be a loser. Okay. <laughs> he's just saying. You're not going to be a part of the band. You might as well grade them. You you're going to be a writer. Just accept the fact that you're a loser. That's basically how it goes. Yeah. Does have the awesome, I can't just stand around talking to my fans all day. <laughs> Smash cut to him inside of a coffee shop with him. He gives William his first assignment. He's get to go down and cover the Black Sabbath concert. He goes to the concert. He is stopped at the door by uh, Penn of Penn and Teller, who tells him he's not on the list, so he can't get in. This goes on way too long. I guess this was supposed to be funny, but... He just keeps getting denied over and over again for entering the building. Yeah. Just Cameron Crowe going with that tried and true, like, oh, if you keep doing it, it'll get funnier eventually. Mm-hmm. I knew they were going to go with that, like, oh, if you just keep trying it, eventually it'll work. And I'm like, this is, this is getting old really fast. The Dane Cook school of comedy. If you just do the same thing over <laughs> yeah, and over oh again, gosh. it'll eventually get funny. But this leads us to a chance meeting with Penny Lane, Kate Hudson. It has come to this. Kate Hudson's Oscar-nominated performance. It's all happening. It is all happening. Kate Hudson is, I will give her this, she's trying. Mm -hmm. She is trying much more than Patrick Fugit tries in the entire movie, just in this one scene. Her introduction with the glasses and just... uh, like just, she's, she's so cool. It looks like she came from heaven. She's like a guardian. She's like Jenna Elfman and can't hardly wait. Uh, she's a Band-Aid, though. She's not a groupie. The other female fans surrounding her kind of explain her legendary status. Uh, but they're all there for Stillwater, who I guess is the opening act for Black Sabbath. Stillwater arrives, frontman Jason Lee, uh, Jeff, and then, I guess, would you say the second main character of the movie? Like, the second lead? Like, if you had... If we're talking about screen time, definitely. Yeah. Like, you could conceivably have nominated Billy Crudup for the lead role in this. Because you're, you're not going to nominate Patrick Fugate. <laughs> no. I mean, unless we're going into the Golden Raspberries, but... <laughs> Russell Hammond, Billy Crudup, Dr. Manhattan, J. Edgar Hoover has arrived with a killer mustache and one hell of a do atop his head. The band's there. They are obviously fucking 
schlubs, jobbers. They can't even get in. Uh, once the door finally does open, they sneak in William with them, and a relationship immediately begins. This all because William fawns over them and explains how big of a fan he is. Yeah, I did not share his adoration for Stillwater. I felt cheated because we came to this concert to see Black Sabbath. Then suddenly we're supposed to be satisfied with Stillwater and Black Sabbath never shows up. Instead, we just we get the Stillwater performances. And I was like, who's Stillwater? Who cares? For a a movie that's so rich with what the fuck appearances and cameos, you would think they could have gotten like, I don't know, who would have been hot at the time to play Ozzy Osbourne? Jack Black. Kevin Spacey. (laughs) (laughs) I was disappointed we didn't see Ozzy or Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Or just smashed together. Um, Yeah, we get our first uh, Stillwater performance, Fever Dog, which what's a Fever Dog? Jason Lee making up lyrics as he goes. Jason Lee in this movie, all the way from now when we introduce him, all the way till his Oscar clip, all he does is yell. Mm -hmm. He is the most one note. This guy, I mean, I know him from the Kevin Smith movies, so I've seen him play different characters. Yeah, those ranging movies that (laughs) Kevin Smith (laughs) Yeah, He can deliver dialogue, he can be smart. Here, he's just angry. That's all he does. That's the, and I don't know if it's because uh, character is just angry the whole time. That's his only trait that I feel like he has is to be that character in the movie that says like, "Hey, you're unfair with the band." And, and he puts like shaving that. cream in his hair. That really just whoa! Me. Did he actually? Yeah. <laughs> when he's getting interviewed, he takes the thing of shaving cream, puts it in his hand, then runs it through his hair. I was and then his was... hair looked exactly the same. I think I noticed that. Yeah, it was, there was no sheen to it. This first concert concludes. They tell William to meet him in L.A. at the Riot House, the Continental Hotel. And to bring Penny Lane along. Um, so they go there, and this is just like a fucking madhouse. <laughs> and a wild Jay Boruchel appears, who he is apparently a super fan for Led Zeppelin. And Penny has the line, he travels with the band, but not with the band. Uh, just fucking Mark, he's walking around with his Sharpie, talking about this shirt that he got signed. We didn't need Jay Baruchel here, it's just distracting. I mean, I guess Cameron Crowe needed someone to make Patrick Fuggett look tough. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess Cameron Crowe couldn't be. You can't fault him for not knowing that Jay Baruchel was going to become a superstar down the line. (laughs) You know, several years down the line. He didn't realize he was setting him up. Right. You know, this is supposed to be a nothing part. Yeah. You're not supposed to go, hey, it's Jay Baruchel. You're supposed to. He leapfrogged over Patrick (laughs) Fuggett. No kidding. He, to this day, still exists between the two. Uh, Kate Hudson is a fucking sociopath, is what I have in my notes here. It's revealed she used William to get there just so she could shack up with uh, Russell once more. Right, because Rogue lays it down. Mm-hmm. Rogue is one of the band-aids, uh, Anna Paquin, and she she just tells William what he's too young, I guess, to have noticed, but we all knew, which is that she's not interested in him. Well, I have here, yeah, William's just a hopeless romantic. <laughs> you know, the first pretty girl pays attention to him. Of course he's going to fall. He's going to become hopelessly devoted, as we can throwback to uh, but see at 15 i think the movie what the movie should be doing is telling you the story of how at 15 yes he's a hopeless uh romantic and he is a you know he has all this uh hero worship that he puts on the bands and all the stuff and the movie should be his journey to not be that anymore Mm -hmm. but when the movie ends he's still the same guy and the movie basically telling him oh well you know you you were successful by being the way you are you were successful even like he ends up in uh I think that by the end of the movie, Penny thinks more highly of him than she does of Russell. Yeah, and during this time, too, Penny's doing pretty much all she can to just entice everyone in the band <laughs> and just kind of set the expectation that there's, you know, she has no boundaries with them. 
Um, this seems as good a time as any to bring in the evergreen question throughout Almost Famous of how old is Penny Lane? <laughs> yeah, I I even I asked it before we started recording because I wanted to make sure that I hadn't missed a moment where the movie categorically told you. But we you literally have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I wanted the movie to tell me if she was of age so I could stop judging uh, all these adults mm-hmm. that are just, you know, passing her around like she's candy. So the closest we come to anything is she... When William says, I'm 18, she agrees. Then she says she's 17. Then she says she's 16. Later on in the movie, she says that really she's done double the things she said she's done. Uh, it's not unlike the Joker origin story in uh, The Dark Knight and also The Killing Joke in that which one is real? We don't know what the It truth depends is. on who's asking. Yes. Well, in, in reality. We, we see at the end that she like owns her own home <laughs> and, you know, there's no telling. She could be 18, she could be 16, she could be 37. In reality, though, the closest we get is just how Kate Hudson looks, because she looks like she's in her mid-20s. So you could argue that everybody's preserving the fantasy that she's underage, because that's what they get off on, but everybody knows that they're okay. As Jason Lee says, I find the one guy who's not getting off, and I make him get off. Uh, Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone reaches out to William. Uh, He's been reading his pieces in Cream Magazine and wants to... Uh, bring him on board to write a piece. William suggests covering Stillwater. This is when we get our first appearance, of course, not our last, by Rain Wilson, Dwight of Office fame, Just who the somehow looks older here than he does in the office. <laughs> there, this really is like the cameo movie. Yeah. I'm... I can't even keep track of how many random cameos there were, but that was a pretty big one that like didn't really have anything to do with anything. Was the office going at this point? I don't know. Two thousand homeboy. The office was like five years away. Okay, well I don't know. I don't keep track of like the American debuts. I can tell you when the office started after I moved here. Touche, touche. So, so this somewhere is around Wilson. this time, but the most random fuck for me that I did not recall at all, the most random cameo is Nick Swartzen as the obsessed David Bowie fan. You know who Nick Swartzen is, right? I, I know I know our that friend scene, Reed hates him. Yeah, where the they're at that hotel and that guy goes, Bowie! And like throws the glitter. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, and Cam from Modern Family. Yeah. Um, so Francis McDormand. <laughs> at this point, Rain Wilson is on about the same level as Jay Baruchel, basically. In terms of... Of just where he is oh, in the Oh, notoriety? Like, yeah. Uh, I'd even say at this point, Jay Baruchel, slightly more so, because this would have been around the time Undeclared was around. So he at least had something to hang his hat on. He had groupies. Yeah. Yeah. But Wilson Rain Wilson here that. with his fucking French cigarette holder, this holier-than-thou <laughs> attitude, just looking sleazy as the day is long, greasy mustache, just nodding his head feverishly about That's the all he does in the movie. He doesn't really have any lines. He just nods. And... The only lines he has, he's being talked over by someone else. So <laughs> this this delayed his <laughs> his runway in Hollywood. Um, One of those rare occasions where being on a popular movie actually hurts you. <laughs> <laughs> so they send William on tour with the band. We get another one of our conscience speeches from Philip Seymour Hoffman, who tells him, this is bad. They're going to try to be fr- your friends, and they're not your friends. You need to So this is a pickup, right? Because this is just Philip Seymour Hoffman in his apartment talking on the phone. Mm-hmm. Do you think that... with the? Did you notice all the like boxes of fried chicken like to the side? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, do you think that they finished the movie and then Cameron Crowe realized that he hadn't quite hammered home the point of the movie? And so he called Philip Seymour Hoffman and was like, hey, can we just shoot in your apartment just a few phone conversations so that you can really, really explain what the movie is about? He does go on tour with the band, though, against Philip Seymour Hoffman's advice and... 
terms of how to approach this. All he wants is an interview with Russell Hammond for the piece. I think he connects to Billy Crudup the most from this. The first night on tour, I believe it is, when they launch into it, we get a very candid speech from Russell Poolside, where he just says, just make us sound cool. But this is also like, the he smartens him up scene. We do things we're not supposed to out here, and that's fine for you to know, but not for a million people to know. He, tell, he looks at him, he says, welcome to the fucking show. If you expose the secrets, I will kill you. <laughs> but but see, I, here, this is my main problem with the movie, beyond Penny Lane's age. It's <laughs> <laughs> just the fact that the movie is not an accurate representation of rock and roll. And as we go through the rest of it, we'll see that, you know, nobody dies, nobody ODs. One person ODs that's not, like, really in the band. There's the, the, the violence, the chaos, the... It doesn't, it's sanitized, right? And so when I see the scene where Russell is telling Patrick Fugate, make us look cool, that's when I really realized that, yeah, this is really Cameron Crowe doing, like I told you when the movie is over, this Cameron Crowe is, uh, this is 40. This is just like a thinly veiled autobiography where he's just going through his childhood memories and making everybody look cool. So even the mom that's, you know, a, a nagging mom and she's overbearing or whatever, you get to love her at the end because, you know, she really meant well. And the sister, well, she's a rebel, but, you know, she ends up being a responsible adult and having a career as a flight hostess. And the girl that almost OD'd ends up going to Morocco because, you know, life works out for everybody. And I was like, Cameron Crowe, were you not paying attention to Philip Seymour Hoffman? <laughs> You're supposed to be honest. You're supposed to be true to to the story. So I, I think that he drank the Kool-Aid, and this is the, the, probably the most honest scene in the movie. In this case, the Heineken. Yes, the Heineken. <laughs> Fifty uh, bucks and a pack of Heineken. Yeah, <laughs> take take one of the beers for for William here, and it, this is the most honest scene in the movie where he is almost confessing. Yeah, you know, I'm just the main point of this movie is to make them look cool, not to really tell you the truth about what it's like to be on a rock and roll tour. From a developmental standpoint, though, uh, from a character perspective, we are. Sp I think Russell is supposed to be the hero in the band, but this is a scene where we find out he's just a massive fucking cock when <laughs> yeah. he talks about I've surpassed them all musically. It's not a challenge for me to be with them anymore, but you know, each year we make more money. It's harder and harder for me to walk out on them. That's the other thing. I mean, I did not. I was not impressed by him as a musician. It, it, the only person that makes an, a, an impression is really Jason Lee, and that's not even because he's great. It's just because well, he gets to sing. Mm -hmm. there's never a moment where you just think that russell is a he really is ahead of demand it, it yeah it, they they keep t they keep talking about it but they never show you right they he's just you. he's just a lead guitarist and he's just meshing with everybody else he's joey fatone to their sync. he's the one that's gonna <laughs> be the big breakout star right jason lee's trying really hard to be uh timberlake and uh just to tie in with our previous episode i guess penny lane is britney yeah or christina because she kind of dies off towards the end. <laughs> One of their upcoming shows, Russell is electrocuted by a, I guess, a loose wire on a microphone based on a true story from 70s. I can't remember who the actual artist was that was electrocuted. Uh, they say, fuck it, we're out of here. They leave the venue. They take off in a huff. The promoter of the concert is a very young, still very old-looking Mark Marin, though. And you didn't even believe me. I, I had to process it. Do you know who Mark Marin is, Kinsey? I don't think I know who he is. It's, uh, I didn't recognize him. He's, he's an older person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't know that. He's, uh, he's a pioneer of the podcast games. So. Yeah. Really? He, yeah. Has, he has a pod He's a uh, stand-up comedian, and he's come to 
Dawson several times. I, I think the opening to his podcast has the quote of him going, lock the gates on these fuckers. Or, really? Yeah. Oh, man. It's been a while since I've listened to his podcast. He he goes on. He basically invites somebody and he just talks to them for hours. But really, he's also a comedian. He had a TV show. I don't think he has it anymore. Does he do any more movies? Or? Uh, he was in Glow. That was the most recent acting gig he had. He was the... He's really good in Glow. Yeah. Uh, gets more screen time than here. Yeah, <laughs> he's unrecognizable. Well, now I'll just know him from this. Yeah, now you... I, when I quote him, I'll just be like, "Oh, that guy, the one that had the really short cameo." Trust me, you'll forget. The angriest murderer, <laughs> almost famous. They're out of there. We cut to the next night, the next concert. I, I don't even know where we are. It's a dizzying tour. Uh, the T-shirts for Stillwater arrive, and uh, <laughs> I, I actually thought this was fantastic. But it goes to y'all's point of what you're saying. It furthers this narrative that Russell's the star, despite the movie doing nothing to show you that why he's the star. They get their T-shirts, and all three of the band members are out of focus, and Russell is in focus, clear as day up front. Is yeah. this when they say that him being attractive is a problem? <laughs> your looks are becoming a problem. I think that's what they were trying to derive, that you're so attractive because you're better than everyone else, and you're the most attractive, so you're going to be on the front of the shirt. Yeah, Teenage the heartthrob Billy Crudup. Yeah. It's the mustache. Yeah. I guess the movie's trying to justify that maybe he's not that great musically, but he's hot. He's hotter <laughs> than at least everybody else in the band, so... That's a fair point. But this leads to a massive blowout. They just, you know, trade barbs, FUs back and forth. And... It's Jason Lee's Oscar clip. This is? I think so. Okay. I think this is the closest. He gets. I mean, I don't think he's a, it's a good Oscar clip, but I think it's designed to be his I thought his moment. was at the end where he was refuting everything that was written about him. I really, I thought that was his. When he looks to the heavens and says, is it so hard to make us look cool? Uh, it's, yeah, maybe. I think this one has because he, he gets on a one-on-one basically with uh, yeah, Billy Crudo. Right. He gets to get in his face and stand his ground. Through this, Russell quits. He says he just he's done with the band. He only wants things that are real. Him and William go for a walk, and a group of youths pull up in a Volkswagen van and ask him if he wants to go party with some real Topeka people. No good story has ever started with that opening. <laughs> yeah, they literally say... We're just Topeka people, man. Yeah. Run. <laughs> you want to get in my van? <laughs> Even William knows better. He's shaking his head, but... They go to this house party that looks like the land of misfit toys. It's just all these chubby kids and band t-shirts and, you know... This is not legal. No. And they all recognize Russell because he's the most popular. He's right. the hot one. He's the, he's the hot one. <laughs> you hear them they all say, know who he is. Russell, oh my god. That's the hot guy from uh, Stillwater. <laughs> Yeah, it's not legal because they're underage, and also they're partaking in hallucinogenic drugs that are not market legal either. There's, I, I've never heard of beer being an acid. Maybe that was a thing back in the 70s. Maybe they mix it with something. Never dabbled, so I'm not exactly sure how that works. But Russell dabbles and dabbles hard, and William calls their tour manager and is like, he's on acid. He has the line of, how much is too much? Smash cut to Russell on the roof of the party, screaming that he's a golden god. This was probably the most famous scene from the movie. Uh, it's in the trailer, or a famous probably. line, excuse me. Most famous scene from the movie we're about to get to. Uh, it goes on some long-winded spiel about God knows what. What does he talk about? His final words are, I'm on drugs, and you can print that in Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, see, this is a perfect example of sanitizing a story. While trying to give you the impression that, oh, I'm showing you the good stuff, because, you know, he was on drugs, and he was speaking nonsense, and he almost died. 
in the real world, this story ends with the cops busting that party, Russell falling from the roof and breaking a leg, and just a ton of lives ruined. Just tries to do like a flip and then just lands on the edge of the pool, <laughs> breaks his back. His career ends <laughs> right there. But no, it's just, it almost it ends up as a funny anecdote. When they come pick him up the next day, those kids have had the best night of their lives and they're just teary-eyed as they wave goodbye. It's, come on. Not aged well for today's generation either. They would watch it and say, why isn't anyone filming it on their phone? <laughs> Who's taking a boomerang? <laughs> Not a single selfie was taken in that party. <laughs> the Topeka party wraps up the next day. Russell is worse for wear, hungover, coming down on acid, gets on the tour bus to a dozen scowls from his band members, Penny Lane, uh, a couple other Band-Aids, and then just some dude on there that I don't know who he is. And they don't explain it. Which leads us into the most famous scene of the movie. Hold me closer, Tony Danza. <laughs> Hold me closer. Tony Danza. <laughs> The group, one by one, starts joining in into a final crescendo of singing Elton John's Tiny Dancer, proving without a shadow of a doubt that a good Elton John song can fix even the allegedly the, the wildest of feuds. I think that in order for this scene to work for you, you need to have at least some sort of connection with, to Elton John, which I don't. I don't know. Kinsey, did you even know the song? Yeah, well, the thing is, um, even before seeing this movie, you're like because this is my first time seeing it, or even before knowing anything about this movie, I could tell this is one of, like, those scenes that people talk about. Uh-huh. Because it's their singing Tiny Dancer, Elton John, <laughs> and it's a rock and roll movie. And I and everyone starts singing along to it. I was like, I already know this is probably a famous scene from this movie. This is probably one that people talk about. But I thought it was cool. I mean, it was one of the, one of the cooler scenes I liked. I, I rejected the manipulation. And maybe yeah. I wouldn't have felt the manipulation if I was a big Elton John fan. Where do you fall on the Elton John thing? Have oh. you even watched the recent Elton John biopic? No, but I love Elton John uh, musically. I don't know too much about him personally. I, I don't have an overwhelming sense to see the said biopic. Yeah, I feel like they were all too quick to forgive him, and also the fact that he could have just destroyed the band's image by getting... They were tri- so fine that that happened. ...tripped out of his mind. Like, there was a couple kids at those parties that looked like they were 14. So <laughs> yeah. God knows what was going on there. Yeah, I just, I think that this is one of those moments where I told you, I think we're halfway through the movie, when I said, I can totally see how there's a three-hour cut of this movie. Mm-hmm. This is one of those sequences where it takes more than one song. It should have been a whole Elton John album before they forgive him. <laughs> they need to get into the groove and then finally forgive him. It It's not even, I don't know, a minute before everybody starts singing along and everything is okay again. Back on the road, the Band-Aids, Sands, Penny Lane... Anna Paquin, the redheaded one, and then the girl from the craft. I can't remember her name. Sapphire is her character's name in the movie. They decide they're somewhere in Tennessee, Greensville, Tennessee, I believe. They decide that they're going to deflower William. And uh, yeah, he he has a hard time registering all this that's going on. Um, I'm just going to say this and I'll let you absorb it. Just switch the genders. Gender swap. And how is this thing still I'm like disturbed. cute? No. <laughs> They played as if it's this great thing that this 15-year-old kid is being uh, sexually awakened by three girls. (laughs) He's woke. (laughs) Uh, Okay, what if it was a 15-year-old girl and older kids running around, dancing around, taking their clothes off? That is disturbing as fuck. That would have been a Harmony Corinne movie. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Not a Cameron Crowe. 
That's uh, that's on the other side of the coin. Right. But see, but that's what this movie was supposed to be. The, the hard expose of oh, the rock and roll. Dude, like a I Harmony Kareem film. <laughs> I did not. Get, yeah, I'm getting Harmony vibes. Yeah. I mean, I guess, if nothing else, what we've realized is that Cameron Crowe is no Harmony Kareem. He does, doesn't have the chutzpah to, to make the same type of movie. Doesn't, he, he turns away. Can't tell the same stories. But it leads to professional issues. These personal issues boil over. And he's behind on his piece with Rolling Stone. Uh, ben Fong Torres calls him, calls his hotel room. Uh, Sapphire answers. And uh, William immediately wakes up when he hears Ben Fong Torres grabs the phone. And he has a, a script written on his hand of basically what to tell him that was provided to him by Lester Bangs. Describes it as a think piece about a band facing the harsh realities of stardom or something along those lines. But this is not before Ben Fong Torres just completely motherfucks him for, <laughs> you know, hooking up with groupies on the road and uh, wasting their resources. As we later come to find out a $600 room service bill, which by modern standards, that's like two grand. William, though, even after all this, after this deep emotional connection and also physical connection, these women still don't respect him and just make him take the laundry to the... So wait, before I go to into the my laundry clerk at the hotel, my point, you say it's like $2,000. What was he, where was he spending $2,000? Did you not see all the food and shit in the room? And he was paying for it? Rolling Stone was. Well, yeah, but that's what I mean. Like he was covering for, because I mean, what if he wasn't there? Who would have, who would have paid for that? Noah Taylor? <laughs> you know, the manager? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. That's why those women are smarter than we are, because they figure out how to get these things. Um, yeah, but there was like room service all over the place. I think that's Dwight's one line. He gets that real creepy eyebrow raise and rolls out the receipt. $600 in room service. William, though, takes the laundry. He attempts to stop by uh, Russell's room. He wants his interview. That's You would not think, like, Russell, after the poolside scene, you think, like, they have, and, like, the party, they have this sense of brotherhood. But he is just so stubborn and refusant towards giving him this interview. Yeah, that's probably the worst thing that they do for a depiction of, uh, of Russell is just to show him as kind of an asshole when it comes to that commitment. He said that he's going to do the interview and then he keeps pushing it back and he makes William cry. He does. Well, to be fair, I think that just the, <laughs> the gravity of the situ of the day is crushing William. Okay. So literally cry me a river. He just had a threesome and he's throwing a fit like, like foursome. He, I guess if you count him. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't counting him. He was not active. I think at all. I mean, if we're comparing virginity, losing <laughs> stories, it just happened to him. He was not. Attractive it happened. Women. He wasn't a part of it. <laughs> right. Well, he watched also, it from above. <laughs> he has so much realization here because also when he's walking past Noah Taylor's room, one of the girls that deflowered him had already made her way to his room. Instantly. He's just like, Oh God, I need to go see a doctor. <laughs> he's like, get down to the free clinic in the back of his head. <laughs> Later that night at the show, Russell gets uh, a bit overzealous while William's on the phone with his mother and Russell grabs the phone and tries to add some levity and be really cute and bubbly with Frances McDormand. And she has none of it and just owns him on she this She neuters phone call. him. She does. She cuts his balls off, says, um, I know your type. You're corrupting my son. This is also where he finds out, I believe, for the first time that he's 15. Right. Yeah. Which really kind of, because at some point I'd made my note that this is, it's a little weird to see a grown man just kind of hanging out with a 15-year-old. <laughs> and now then at this point I realize he didn't really know. Have you seen Mud? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Mud? Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I saw one we had at the theaters. <laughs> yeah, hang out with two little boys. Yeah, but to be In fair, he 
Yeah, he didn't have anybody else to hang out with. Russell is surrounded by adults. This is true. And how we get... did you not know? He looks so young, too. How, does, how did no one notice that this is a 15-year-old kid? Yeah, and I don't understand how that didn't make Russell go, you know, I never asked Penny how old she is. <laughs> She'd probably get on that. He was probably happy he, in his head that she was younger. <laughs> yeah. With William, I don't know. I mean, really, the only justification for how bad Patrick Fugit's acting is, is just that, okay, he's a little kid. So maybe it's either Patrick Fugit being a really bad actor or a really good actor that really got into the spirit of just, he's a kid that doesn't know how to react to anything. Just walking such a fine line. But she hits him with the, there's hope for you yet. Be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. I feel like Frances McDormand was in a different movie. Yeah. She, unlike the, the phone calls to Phil Seymour Hoffman, who feel organic to this, like they're part of this world of rock and roll and music. She feels like she's on Broadway. <laughs> she's like on stage just being, she's acting. Yeah. She, she wanted an Oscar nom and she got it. You want to up the over the top overacting enter jimmy fallon the new manager of the group or i guess he comes in and sells he tries to sell himself as the manager yeah and explain he wants to manage their manager mm -hmm. it was to me it was just jimmy fallon in a mustache be, trying to be a manager with wireframe glasses <laughs> hey you want to you want money <laughs> he you was trying money? not to look like jimmy fallon so they would let him on set yeah and then russell hammond just says hello and then he just laughs and starts crying at his desk <laughs> oh my god that's <laughs> <laughs> a he was originally cast as a Fimi Jalen. <laughs> <laughs> he tells them, hey, let's get you fuckers on a plane. We can make more stops this way. Uh, you guys are the record company. So much money. We need to get more shows so you guys break even. You guys don't know how to be a band or a, a, a touring band, and I'm here to help you out with it. And he does have the line that I know was, was written for him because Jimmy Fallon's not this creative. The I didn't invent the rainy day. I just have the best umbrella. I think that was a fantastic, like, a bookend to put on that part of the movie. You don't think Jimmy Fallon can come up with that? Have you watched his show? Yes. <laughs> okay, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so where, where in Jimmy Fallon's career does this movie happen? He was probably only... Um, so on Saturday Night Live, you know, starring, and then it gets to the featuring. Right. He was probably feature a feature player. player at this point. Because, yeah, he definitely, it was 2000, so this would have been recorded, recorded, Jesus, filmed in 1999-ish, some in 2000, so yeah. So to put it in terms that we can all understand, like where is he in relation to Rain Wilson and uh, Jay Baruchel? Jay Baruchel is still the box office king amongst the three of them. <laughs> when they were sharing that trailer, Baruchel got the, the bed, and yeah. then Rain Wilson and Jimmy Fallon were just on the floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, Crow's like, here's 30 bucks, there's a Super 8 down the street. <laughs> Fallon would have had to sleep on the couch in the lobby at the hotel. That that would have been the ranking at this point. Because Rain Wilson still looks like he could beat the shit out of Jimmy Fallon. So uh, Cameron Crowe just like snapped a stick and is like, tryouts. <laughs> they get on the plane. We get the most shoehorned musical number of the movie where I guess Cameron Crowe woke up one day and just decided that he wanted Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix in his movie for 10 seconds. Fly across the country. Uh, we get a Mitch Hedberg cameo, which he has no lines, but rest his soul, it was good to see him. He, where is he? I completely miss him. The scene where they're playing the poker game, he's on the right end of the oh, table. Oh, he's one of the yeah. one of the guys. Who is it? Uh, Mitch Hedberg. He was a fairly famous comedian in the early 2000s. He passed away in like 2006 or seven. He had a really, really particular delivery. I think he was just 
if I remember correctly, Crow just liked his comedy. He's like, hey, you want to just sit in the scene? You don't have to do makeup or like period costume or anything because you look exactly ready for the part. <laughs> you want to sit on one of the grossest scenes in the movie. Yes. Where there is a game of poker going on that is like an eternal game of poker where they just play whatever they have at their disposal, be it booze, drugs, in this case, women, as on a hand of poker, uh, Noah, Ta- uh, Noah Taylor, excuse me, gambles away Penny Lane and um, Sapphire and Anna Paquin. And, uh, oh, no, yeah, he trades them for... For 50 bucks and a case of beer. Yeah. This Not is... even, even apart from being gross, I think he's not a very good negotiator. <laughs> Could have gotten <laughs> two cases of beer at $100. Like, yeah, I was about to say. I feel like it wasn't a very fair trade. $60, <laughs> <Yeah>. maybe. <laughs> uh, and this is where William becomes a man, because he sees how the real world works here in the industry that he's wanting to get into. And this is not something that sets easy with him to the point where Russell Hammond sees what's unfolding emotionally and has to get up and explain to him, this is the circus. No one's saying goodbye. We're just going our separate ways for right now. He basically gives him the end of Frosty the Snowman. I'll say goodbye, but don't you cry. I'll be back again someday. This leads into his Oscar clip, Patrick Fugitz. Oh, this is, uh, well, this is attempt, the double Oscar well, scene. See, my theory is that this was designed to be Patrick Fugitz's Oscar clip. He gets all the lines and this everything. This is the for your consideration. Right. And then... Because he sucks so much, <laughs> Kate Hudson actually just took over, and she got nominated off of this clip. Like he submitted for it for the Academy's consideration, and the Academy considered the wrong person. <laughs> they took the they assumed it was a Kate Hudson clip instead of a Patrick Fugit clip. There's no way this is his clip. Yeah, no, th- this kid sucks. But that girl, yeah. that reaction is on point. I, I legitimately think this was her clip that they showed at the, the Oscars. Oscars. Yeah. yeah, this was it. Should have been her clip. I mean, I was a little impressed yeah. yeah she's going on with her delusional rambling about the real world and uh russell and all this and william just has enough flies off the handle and says you know i'm not sweet you should be scared of me i'm the enemy and then she's dark and mysterious <laughs> i'm dark and mysterious <laughs> and she's well you just don't know him like i do and he just hits her hard and cold with the who gambled you away to humble pie for 50 bucks and a case of beer she brushes it off pretty well I mean, there's a tear. Oh, there's several tears. And then she realizes that this is not on brand for her, so she has to ask what kind of beer. And the movie never tells us. That's probably one of the biggest disappointments. Who says Heineken? Noah Taylor. Oh, yeah. In the beginning, they go 50 bucks and a case of Heineken. Yeah. Oh. Well, I was and I just, thought he was going to say it, Heineken, and then he never did. I was so disgusted by the human trafficking that I completely <laughs> turned him off. Heineken's good stuff, but, it, you know, it's, but it's, it's not okay, the official beer of human, tra- human trafficking. <laughs> <laughs> if you put it that way, yeah. When I'm trading away a lady, I reach for an ice-cold Heineken. Stella Artois, the official beer <laughs> of human trafficking. We go to New York City where all things have to fucking culminate in film. A wild Jay Baruchel appears. He followed Led Zeppelin. He explains to William that Penny's here, which she's not supposed to be, because William uh, has been informed that uh, it's Russell. I don't know if it's his wife, but definitely his rum- his significant other. At some point, Penny says refers to her as her ex-wife slash girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So I guess they were married at some point. Got divorced, and now they're dating again. She should have known better by now. (laughs) Kate Hudson, the road wife, is not to be in New York City, but apparently she is. Uh, She's at, I forget which hotel, Bruchelle name drops, but she's under Emily Rugburn. Rolling Stone speaks with William and confirms that it's going to be a cover story, but he's going to need to get to uh, California the next day. 
but he needs to fax them uh, the pages that he has so far. Yeah, and this was a very weak sauce, misguided, misplaced joke about faxing in the 1960s or 1970s at this point. Yeah, it went over my head. I was like, this is <laughs> You're like, what is what is a fax? What is he talking about? <laughs> 18 minutes for a page yeah and they're, they're all it's incredible it takes 18 minutes per page and then Cameron Crowe like holds yeah like, ah, ah. isn't it yeah, funny yeah that hold was so long I was like that was supposed to be funny I mean I think we were m mostly as a country still on dial up at this point so we weren't too far away from that but we go yeah, to I said the audience watching we were like that sounds awesome <laughs> where can I get one of these mojo machines where can I get a mojo William breaks the news to the band. They're at a celebratory dinner of sorts and explains they're going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. The problem child herself, Penny Lane, appears at this restaurant they're at and can't stop looking at Russell to the point where his wife, not wife, takes notice of what's going on. His official woman. And asks, who is that girl? Is she with anybody? And every male at the table except for Russell says, she's with me. Even William's in on it. He's part of the, the freaking problem now. He's part of the circus. <laughs> yeah, I thought they, they should have just played off as, oh, no, she's just looking at Jason Lee's uh, Freddy shirt. She's looking at his hair and saying, I wonder if he puts shaving cream in that. <laughs> that can't be natural. <laughs> But Noah Taylor, the band's manager, gets up and goes over to her, I think, in his mind to take care of the problem. And it just seems like he's just whispering to her, you need to get the fuck out of here, and, like, <laughs> shoving her away. I was wondering why he said to her. I was wondering, did he come up to her and say, like, hey, everyone is looking at you. You need to leave. Yeah, and it's or, weird because... It's weird. It comes off weird. Yeah, because she has been shown to be a lot more self-aware than this. She knows that that's... She has to know that that's his wife slash girlfriend or whatever so for but her she's to be a sociopath so <laughs> it needs to be the root of all attention in this movie so she has to hijack not only seen you know from a viewer's perspective but from a character perspective as well this band's getting news that they're going to be on the cover of the most prominent music magazine in the world but meanwhile she's over there like hey look at me but see but she could have been a lot smarter she's been smarter in the movie and she could have just gone yeah. and like sat on william's lap this is very out of character yeah she's just like the most obvious she's been and the least crafty blinded by the love she has become the fever dog <laughs> <laughs> i think it's more accurate to say that cameron crowe turned her into the fever dog because he needed to wrap this movie up second musical number featuring an elton john song with mona lisa and mad hatters as William and both William and Russell stand up as they see there's problems amounting with Penny Lane. Russell looks to him and gives him the nod of, this is your fight now, boy. He takes off after Penny Lane. He finds her in her hotel room. She's taken an entire bottle of Quaaludes. I applaud his restraint that Scorsese could not demonstrate in Wolf of Wall Street, turning this entire scene into this dumb fucking physical comedy show. Well, yeah, but this is a movie about restraint. That's, it's... It's main flaw. Well, it's funny you say restraint, because this is the scene where she, uh, in an attempt to keep her alive, William is trying to keep her awake, holding her up, propping her up. He calls the front desk, says we need a doctor. Uh, she passes out in his arms. It is at this point he professes his undying love for her, and then goes, quote, where many, many men have gone before, and kisses penny as he really she... did it like when she was unconscious i, <laughs> I was know like, they're not this is the 2000s they were doing crazy things but i didn't know they were gonna do that this even... was the 1970s no even as a as a 2000 
you know, depiction of the 70s, this is wrong. This is just uh, because it's not that he does it, it's that the movie endorses it. It sells you the, this moment that's like, oh, look, how cute is this? That he gets to tell her he loves her. Well, she's passed out and then he goes for a kiss. That's so, so we should applaud the fact that he didn't like all out rape her <laughs> because you're not going to remember this. Yeah, that's, he even acknowledges that she's that she's completely under the influence. No. You always ask, you always get consent. Wrong. Shame on you, Cameron Crowe. And then he watched her while she was throwing up. Like, it was really And he smiles. And he's like, like happy. Yeah. He's a real sociopath here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a clip. You can know you could recut this for, like, a serial killer movie where William's the killer. And that would be, like, the closing shot of his smile watching her. <laughs> that's a real Joker trailer. The doctor and his nurse, or I guess his assistant. It could just be a random citizen. It's not explained who the woman is with him. Yeah, the, the receptionist. We need a doctor! <laughs> Comes in, does the hot water bottle trick, fills her stomach full of epicac or God knows what, makes her throw up all the lewds, leads to a walk through Central Park uh, where we learn Penny Lane, one, that she's, you know, we don't get a number, but we find out she's older than we think she is. She's done more with her life than we know of. That all we know so far is borderline fabrication. We learned that her name is Lady Goodman in a reveal because her mother wanted her to grow up to be regal and proper and, you know, royal. We're still missing a middle name. There's no way that she's just Lady. Lady Goodman. Lady Stephanie Goodman? Lady, Lady. Goodman. Oh, good is the middle name. Yeah. Lady Good Man with two N's. <laughs> now, unraveling a bit more of this here, we go to the airport. William drops her off. This is where they say their goodbyes. Uh, it's her flight home to wherever that may be. She gets on the plane. Earlier in the movie, there's allusion to her doing the routine of a stewardess on an airplane. And here, she knows the entire thing verbatim. So that's even more of a wrinkle to her character. She was probably a stewardess for like 10 years before she decided to just quit and follow music on the road. She's in her 40s. But while she's doing this rigmarole of the uh, pre-flight instructions, she begins to recall the previous evening. Because part of William trying to keep her awake was reciting the tray tables and seat backs and she remembers what happened and, and you can see the look of horror on her face she's overcome with emotion at this point positive or negative you know that's the kate hudson trick you can't really tell what you're getting oh my <laughs> she's off and she's off for good we see her once more in the movie but as far as penny lane goes that's the movie's yeah. done with her destroyed mm -hmm. her completely that was it yeah. that 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 perky girl that over kept overstaging everybody else in the cast from the very beginning is is gone because the movie has just done a number on her we go to the plane ride from hell as william is back with Stillwater. they're on their private jet they get caught in an electrical storm and the turbulence is quite something i actually wish there was a feature out on how they made this because this looked like um, that giant colander scene in inception with the giant practical like tube that yeah, people were in that's what i thought they were using yeah like when Fallon, that moment where Fallon just flies to the ceiling. <laughs> just walking on the side of the plane cabin. This, you know, some people would try to focus on the positives moments before they die, as it seems like things are pretty bleak. But instead, they take this opportunity to just all gang up on Russell and tell him what a piece of shit he is. And then they take turns telling each other who they cheated on with who. It's an SNL skit. That's the Jimmy Fallon influence right there. This looks like something that Jimmy Fallon would come up with. On his show? Yeah. Yeah. Or on SNL whenever they, they allowed him in the writer's room. Well, of course, he starts the, the chain of, you know, the, the ripple and saying, you know, that he hit a man in Dearborn, Michigan and just kept driving. He didn't know if he was alive or dead. That was the only thing that I took from that scene. 
uh, after that, just everyone's <laughs> cheating on everyone. Jeff's in love with uh, Russell's ex-wife, wife, what have you. And then William remains silent until Jeff has the gall to call Penny Lane a groupie. And he explains, you know, she was a fan of your music. She was your biggest fan. She almost died last night. And, you know, if I hadn't been there, she would be dead. And I love her. It's then, Fugit's attempt at a second Oscar clip. The drummer of the band, I forget his name, his character's name, or his real name. His one and only line in the movie is, uh, on the precipice of death, he decides to admit to the band that he's gay. At that point, gray skies clear up, and they ride off into the sunset. Never, We never explore what happened to this character after such a traumatic coming out <laughs> experience. I thought were, he was going to put it in the article. Also, one of the bandmates is... <laughs> By the way, let me out this guy. The final line. I'm going to out him. <laughs> In closing, the drummer's gay. <laughs> they part ways. The band takes off. The last one to acknowledge William is Russell. He says, write what you want. William goes to Rolling Stone. They are aghast, understandably so, that he is a 15-year-old child. Uh, but he has his notes together. He asks for one more night to write the story. And then we get... Philip Seymour Hoffman bringing it home is clearly the most talented person in this movie with the scene that Kinsey had referenced earlier about being uncool. About, uh, I'm always home. I'm uncool. Just explains, I told you this. He basically tells him, I told you this would happen and you didn't listen to me. So now you got to live 15. with this. Yeah. He was telling everyone how the movie was going to go and no one listened to him. <laughs> he was warning us. So William writes the story on the band and it is categorically denied. 90% of it is the quote we get that is denied specifically by Russell Hammond. This is what I was saying with uh, Jason Lee's Oscar scene for me where he's being faced with what he really is and he hates to see it. It's like, I sound like a dick. <laughs> and uh, Russell says, maybe we don't see ourselves the way we actually are. William on his journey home has a chance encounter with his sister Anita as she is a stewardess with the heir to the Sweetums throne from Parks and Rec. I forget the woman's name. The one who tells him, you have a good you day. Have a good day. Yeah. This is 20 years ago. It would have been 15 years ago from Parks and Rec, and she looks exactly the same, aged quite well. Has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> but she says, William... There's yet another distracting cameo in this movie. <laughs> almost a full movie if you took out all the distracting cameos. <laughs> That's the joke, really, that Almost Famous has nothing to do with uh, with the band. It has to do with like all the failed cameos. <laughs> almost Famous. It's almost Famous cameos. Almost made it. And then people like Jay Baruchel actually kind of make it, so yeah. then they ruin and the joke. In the three-hour version, there's even more cameos. <laughs> so Anita says, we can go anywhere in the world, anywhere you want to go. And William just wants to go home. So we get the rekindling of Frances McDormand and Zoe Deschanel here as they are reunited. William's only interest is getting he into bed. He wasn't as mad as I thought she was going to be. Frances McDormand's character, like, in the beginning was freaking out that they even had, like, a, a disc of, you know, whatever music it was. And then he just got back from being all over the country and she's not even phased. She's like, you know, it happens. You know, one of those things. You just want your kids to live or whatever. Yeah, the movie sells her out. It basically, at the end, it tells you she was all bark, no bite. Yeah. And, and that's really disappointing. Because you, they Calls really, bluff. yeah, they built her up to be a much more interesting, stronger character. And the intern has, oh no, she's just a mom. Because again, Cameron Crowe has to make everybody look good. So God forbid that that Francis McDormand just obliterates her son after he comes home, just smacks him upon sight. <laughs> yeah. 
You Both son of, of a them. bitch. Yeah. First William. And then and, and you. Yeah, William gets this lap and then Zoe Deschanel gets a backhand. Yeah, she just oh revs God. up and Anita! <laughs> Russell Stillwater back on tour. We're at the uh Lillian Lillian said the Orange movie. Bowl. Yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, the Orange Bowl. My sister watched this movie with us. And Sapphire's back there lamenting about the state of the groupie scene and how none of them use birth control and they eat all the good food. And Penny's doing well uh, because William saved her. And then Sapphire just puts the shame on Russell. Be like, what do you care? Everyone knows what you did to him. And that was basically ruin his career. So Russell calls Penny and asks if they can meet up. What a- career? He is 15. I mean. <laughs> well, you know. His week-long career. Yeah. He took away one opportunity. <laughs> He'll be okay. And he didn't graduate high school because of it. <laughs> well, that's on that's on William. That's yeah. And uh, on Francis McDormand's terrible parenting. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, no one taking him seriously. <laughs> he calls Penny, asks if I can see you. Let's say the things we never said. She asks him if he has a pen, provides him with an address, and in the final haha of the movie, and in some ways a vindication of Penny finally being smarter than her male counterparts, she says Fuck both of you. You guys are made for each other. So <laughs> sends Russell to William's home. It and takes him forever to figure out that that's not Penny's home. <laughs> not to mention his Francis McDormand and Zoe Deschanel look nothing like Penny Lane. So I don't know where the confusion would have come in. I guess he's used to people looking at him it, like he's the greatest thing ever. So mm-hmm. when that happens, you know, Zoe Deschanel's looking at him. He's He doesn't you can really tell process. Yeah, he's bummed that Francis McDormand doesn't recognize him. It's like, hey, it's me. <laughs> Okay. What are you selling? Francis McDormand says, I know there's hope for you yet, Russell. Opens the <laughs> opens the door, and uh, we find uh, William sleeping. Russell says, this is where the enemy sleeps. Wakes him up, explains to him, we both wanted to be with Penny, but she wanted us to be together. I called Rolling Stone, told him everything was true. And then William's like, I don't even care. I just want to get my damn interview in. So we get him pulling out his uh, talk back, his talkman. And just says, hey, what do you love about music? And that takes us home. It's intercut with uh, just one of those. I, I honestly expected just titles telling us what happened to remember of the band. Because mm-hmm. it, it seems like the movie was going there. We see the band playing again. And then we see Penny Lane going to Morocco. But no, instead, you know, we just, I guess we get to see what the movie thinks is a happy ending for her. Uh, but to me, like I've been saying throughout the movie, it just feels like a fake ending. Mm-hmm. This girl, well, I guess she's a woman now, <laughs> but she's she's gone through a Not pretty a traumatic Not experience. After this movie, I think she's <laughs> she almost died. And I think having her just fly off into the sunset feels disrespectful to all the groupies slash band-aids that didn't quite have such a happy ending. And that Cameron Crowe has to know about because he was embedded in that business. Mm-hmm. So... He glamorizes the life of 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 these girls as saying, "Well, you know, it's nothing that that uh, a kiss and a well placed stomach pump can't fix." And and it just feels fake. He doesn't make them any deeper than that. Yeah, I guess because he died, maybe he just never even saw that side. Oh, what happens to a groupie or a band aid after they're? He stopped caring as soon as his article as soon was as done. Gone, yeah, as soon as he got home to his bed, he stopped caring. Yeah, I think that just thinking that Penny Lane made it to Morocco is just what he tells himself in order to be able to just <laughs> go on. Because <laughs> in real life, Cameron Crowe never talked to Penny Lane again. But that was almost famous. <laughs> that re- brings us home. That hurt your feelings, Alex? <laughs> yeah, that sucked. I mean, it's an easy thing to poke at, but uh, 
Yeah, we close with the No More Planes tour. They're back on Dolores, the tour bus. But that was Contrarian's Corner for Almost Famous, so we need to move along to Real Talk. Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. As they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Right, because we are uncool. No, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good-looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. And they get the girls. But we're smarter. Yeah, I can really see that now. Yeah, because great art is about you know, the guilt and longing and, you know, love disguises sex and sex disguises love. Hey, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, you got a big head start. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great. You know? The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is it my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. All right, and we're recording Real Talk for Almost Famous. All right, so Real Talk here. Previous segment was Contrarian's Corner. Real Talk here is how we really feel about this movie. So just going into the immediate uh, budget of around $60 million with a box office return of less than 50 So Oh, I think yeah, it didn't was, make it back. Wow. No. I think it was a bomb. This was definitely a movie that has garnered way more it's not like a cult following but it's way more highly regarded now in terms of like fanfare than it was upon release because i mean to be fair there was really nobody in it that I was, was big to say, at the time no box office draw and even cameron the crowbar coming off of jerry Maguire, that still had tom cruise in it philip seymour hoffman though he was he's a little big yeah i mean i think him and francis mcdormand oh, would have yeah. probably been the, After the anchors Fargo. Fargo, yeah yeah so, released. Okay. Word leaked that they were really not in the movie for more than 10 minutes, maybe. What a, what a scam. <laughs> That's why it was and with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Or <laughs> he got the and credit, not with. I mixed the two up. Uh, released on September 13th, 2000. Directed by Cameron Crowe. Written by Cameron Crowe. And the winner of one Oscar with four nominations. Uh, it won for Best Original Screenplay. was nominated for Best Editing. And had two nominations in the category of best supporting actress with Frances McDormand and Kate Hudson extremely well deserved Kate Hudson her one and only which I have referenced on this podcast no less than 20 times her Oscar nominated performance in this so uh before we go too deep into it going over just my uh well first of all being that it's at 89% before I go into the duration of or the remainder excuse me of my trivia what were those nasty green splotches? Who didn't like this movie? Andrew Saris from The Observer said, None of the non-musical components on the screen match the excitement of the music. Not a big Patrick Fugit fan. Apparently not. 
Rob Gonsalves from eFilmCritic.com says, Crow softens just about everything, as if he didn't want to hurt the feelings of anyone he knew back then. <laughs> I think he heard me in Contrarian's Corner. And Jeffrey M. Anderson from Combustible Celluloid says, suffers from a strange fakeness. Short and sweet. Jeffrey M. Anderson says, almost famous is hashtag fake news. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost good. I'm surprised there wasn't one review like that. I looked for it, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> Seems like most people liked it, though. Yeah, 89%. I mean, most people liked it. Yeah, this movie fucking rules. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. my trivia gathering here. Penny Lane asks William if he'd like to come to Morocco with her. He says, yes, ask me again. According to Cameron Crowe, ask me again was Patrick Fwiggett stepping out of character and asking Kate Hudson to repeat the line for another take. Crowe liked it, then he kept it in. I told you, Fwiggett sucks. I, but that, I mean, I'm that's, kidding. No, but yeah, that is like one of the best delivered lines he has in that. It's not even like natural. Uh, as we mentioned, semi autobiographical account of Cameron Crowe's life. Uh, most film music, uh, most films have a music budget of less than 1.5 million. This film featured over 50 songs with a music budget of 3.5 million. Wow. So yeah, there was. Crowe kept telling the studio, don't worry, don't worry. Look at the Jerry Maguire numbers. We're making this money back. <laughs> This is coming. Philip Seymour Hoffman scheduled only permitted him to be on set for four days. He had the flu the entire time. That's why they kept him on phone conversations so he wouldn't get in touch with anybody else, <laughs> get anybody sick. The roles of Russell Hammond and Penny Lane were originally written for Brad Pitt and Sarah Polly. Polly dropped out to work on her own project, the low-budget Canadian movie The Law of Enclosures. According to Crow, Pitt worked with Crow for months before finally admitting, I just don't get it enough to do it. I don't think he would have been a good fit anyway. It would have been weird. Brad Pitt's not a ro rock and roll kind of guy. Bah, Stillwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's. I don't think he screams 70s rock and roll. Like that kind of attractiveness. I don't know, Kinsey, I forgot to ask you. Did you find Russell attractive? I think he's he's one of the better looking guys in it. I wouldn't say that like, <laughs> oh my gosh, he's so attractive. But. It's definitely, you know, it's... I mean, in the movie, okay, sure, because it's traveling with like Noah this Taylor. Is bill. <laughs> this is the hottest Bill that we've I've ever seen in a movie. Wow. The hottest Bill? Billy Crudup. Oh, oh. <laughs> Hashtag hot Crudup. Bill. <laughs> this is the only Billy Crudup I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, Watchmen may kind of swing your vote, but uh, the sexual tension is turned up to 11. Right, but what I'm saying is the movie, obviously, is designed to make him look hot, and he's surrounded by men that are not even close to being attractive. I wouldn't say it's designed to make him look hot. I don't really think it, this movie... I feel like they drive it a little bit. For as much sex and titillation as there is in this, I, I never really have gotten the impression that... They tried to really sexualize any one character, despite the fact that we get a topless shot of Kate oh, Hudson. Kate Hudson, yeah, yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah, it's really quick and kind of out of nowhere. It's kind of unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I it's, guess it's just in case we were wondering if she really was having sex with anyone or if they were just playing cards. They I need think to show us a particular yeah. shot. I think it could be placed probably somewhere else in the movie and make a bit more sense because it is just kind of out of nowhere if they were needing to do that. Yeah. But uh, well, I guess what I was saying is Billy Crudup looks hot in this movie. Outside of this movie. Hot Bill. Yeah. Outside of this movie, though, the hashtag doesn't really apply. He's he's just like a... He's a dude. He's a dude. Yeah. But Brad Pitt, he's always hot. Yeah. So I think that maybe you put him in this movie and I just don't buy him. He, his sexuality would overpower... It could, yeah, it could derail like the 
the actual like intent behind the, yeah. the words in the script. Yeah, Jason Lee wouldn't be able to to just build up enough anger and resentment. <laughs> if it I was think Brad Pitt, I wouldn't have felt the same way. <laughs> yeah, and I think Crudup is hot, but not overwhelmingly so. So it does make it fucking hilarious when he says your looks have become a problem. Right, right. If it was Brad Pitt, it'd be like eye roll. <laughs> It's like they should have been you a problem. Know, you're for right. I should leave the band because I'm hotter than all of you. <laughs> and Sarah Polly just man, talk about a middle of the road actress. I I know I like her, but I don't remember from what. Uh Pleasantville? Scream four. Uh, I don't remember her in any of those movies either. I haven't those seen movies. Scream Four, I didn't know she was in that. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty good. Pretty good. I enjoy it's, it. I oh enjoy man, it more than any. Like her in. Oh, you know what? She's in uh, Go. Have you seen yeah. Go? I haven't seen Go. She's like the main girl in the first chapter. She's good in that. Well, Sarah Polly aside, Kirsten Dunst, Brittany Murphy, Mina Savari, Anne Heche, Nev Campbell, Jenna Elfman, Bridget Moynihan, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Rose McGowan, Chloe Sevigny, Laura Flynn <laughs> Boyle, Allison Hannigan, Catherine Heigl, Natalie Portman, Rebecca Romaine, and Lark Voorhees all auditioned for the role of Penny Lane. Auditioned for it. That means there's footage of this shit somewhere. Natalie Portman would have been like young. And I just I'm trying she, to. She she would have been too young. I yeah, feel like too young. What this is like prequels. She would have seemed younger than William. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, Jenna Elfman would have seemed a bit too old for William. Yeah, I heard some Brittany of those Murphy names. in there too. Brittany Murphy. Yeah, that's a tough one. No, I think they win. It's me, Penny Lane. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> I I think that going with an unknown. Um, was this her first movie, Kay Hudson's debut? Uh, it certainly was before or, the Hudson effect came in. Right. So, yeah. At least going with a relative unknown, it's, it was a good call. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I don't know, now I can't think of anybody else. the entire movie. Uh, no, it wasn't hers. We've done a movie of hers before this on here. Oh, I did see that. 200 cigarettes. cigarettes yeah. yeah. But yeah, this was definitely the first movie of any real notoriety that she did. This is where America fell in love with her. Yeah. for And that lasted. Actually, she got a pretty good skit out of it. She made bunch of bad romantic comedies that made a bunch of money. I know you're not key. talking about How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. <laughs> you know, I own it and I haven't seen it ever. What? I didn't know you hadn't seen it. I Already feel like that should be next on your list. It's very important you see that as soon as you possibly can. Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey, how could I how could I avoid watching that for so many years? Man, I don't know if, there, if she's made a movie since this that I really enjoyed. I like The Killer Inside Me just for the the acting, but it's not a fun movie. Uh, you say there's nothing since this that she's made that you had, that you enjoyed? So this is the only Kate Hudson movie that you enjoy? Uh, I like Something Borrowed, but for no Ooh. good reason. Oh, wow. We screened that movie in... It yeah, was... it's uh, it's horrendous. It's, it's uh, not her fault, though. The entire movie is just a mess. She gets her Oscar scene in that. Anyway focus of this podcast is obviously almost famous and just rounding out what I had here. This one I found fascinating because you're a fan of hers. Cameron Crowe originally wanted Julie Bowen for the role of Penny, but she declined. And really young Julie Bowen. Is this post uh, what is it, Bill Madison? Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore? Movies in 96. Yes, this is, man, your time frames are fucked up, my friend. <laughs> Telling you. John Favreau and John Is this, Bly wait, wait, wait. Is this before Modern Family, yes. Julie Bowen? I know. Oh, you fucking... <laughs> I can't tell with you, man. John Favreau and Jack Black both auditioned for the role of Lester Bangs. Oh, I would have minded John Favreau. No, but Phyllis Seymour Hoffman yeah. just... He, he, 
He's the best part of the movie. He's for the me. most iconic yeah. part of this. And then uh, the director's cut is called what the original name of the movie was, which was Untitled. That's what Cameron Crowe submitted it as. But Almost Famous is a better title. DreamWorks was just like, no, we're not going for your artistic <laughs> bullshit. Put a name on your movie. Jerry Maguire buys you so much goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> we gave you the soundtrack. Now let us name the movie. All right. Almost Famous. This, uh, I think you... We're all part of something very special, and that I think upon this rewatch, this finally uh, officially entered my top five. I think of all time. I think Forrest Gump was bumped out of my top five. Wow! Oh god! It took you watching it again. Yeah, I didn't even know it was happening as it happened. What scene? What scene were you thinking, Forrest? Forrest Gump. Yeah, when did this happen? Um, when they are at the restaurant and Noah Taylor goes to tell her to leave, and both William and uh, Russell stand up uh-huh. and then they just kind of look at each other and it's all mixed in crow man no one can touch him in the music department and that's my favorite Elton John song Mona Lisa and Mad Hatters so the way it all blends together is just like chef kiss so hard <laughs> Russell uh, I'm always gonna call him Russell Billy Crudup so good and that he doesn't have any lines but just his like emoting and and then like the scene to me every time i watch it reminds me how incredible this movie is obviously that scene came before it but the one where patrick Fwig gets crying on the phone with lester bangs and he's doing the whole speech about being uncool and about of course i'm home uncool <laughs> like yeah uh it was recently forrest gump kind of went down a little bit i still love it it's in my top 10 but I recently uh, Halloween usurped it when I actually sat down and kind of crunched the numbers and like my feelings on things. So uh, as it stands currently, I guess my top three movies would be Halloween, Mask of the Phantasm and uh, the first Terminator. Okay, wait. And then I know Almost Famous is there. So what's the fourth Sandlot. Oh, wow. Very diverse little top five. A lot of white people shit. But, oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. So Almost Famous soundtrack. It's. It's a movie that, as we pointed out in the first half, is rife with moral quandaries and dilemmas. But uh, I couldn't tell if you were kidding or not. It doesn't celebrate him taking advantage of her passed out. Uh, no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It's just something to make fun of. Yeah, it, it, it's an easy thing to okay. say. He's a 15-year-old that's obviously... Just taking the easy way out at expressing his feelings. Oh, yeah. So it's not... I don't think... One, one thing you did he, say, though. If he went, like, a little further, then I would be concerned. But yeah. it's like a pre-chased kiss. Yeah. And so if you have a problem with that, you should have a problem with, like, Prince Charming kissing Cinderella or... And he's also, Sleeping like, Beauty. disgusted with himself that he's doing it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and the other said, oh, God, you're never going to remember this. Why am I so nervous? And... But like you said, a, a good thing to point out is... The roles were reversed in that deflowering scene. If it was three dudes, like, that would actually be disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. This is. I mean, it's only a second time I've seen it, but when it's certainly the first time I watched it, I was not really factoring in the fact that he's such a young kid, and I was because I was much younger when I saw it. So when they came out, two thousand, two thousand, right? Yeah. So fuck, I was twenty. Yeah. So of course, to me, it's like, oh, this kid's having like the time of his life. That's great. And now, you know, almost twenty years later, I'm like, Jesus. That kid, you know, is like, yeah, it was the same. It was crazy. But there is, if this is Cameron Crowe telling the story of how he lost his virginity on a tour bus at 15, it was like, that's really not cute. <laughs> is this like a parallel of Cameron Crowe's life? Is I mean, he, like- he's, it's, it's a semi autobiographical thing because he did write 
Oh, maybe really? for Cream Magazine. I think he went on tour with like the Allman Brothers. He he did go on tour with a few bands. Like obviously oh, okay. Stillwater's fictional. And I don't know if you're being sincere, but I hate to burst your bubble. It wasn't actually Jason Lee singing. He was just lip singing. Yeah, that no, I, I saw that. I Still, didn't... Fever Dog, that song fucks hard, man. That song's great. <laughs> uh, Kenzie, this is your first time watching it. I could just glow and gush about this movie all day. But for your first viewing, what were your thoughts on it? Um, I liked it a lot. I feel like it was really character driven. There were like a lot of strong little characters in it that I really love. Frances McDormand, I loved. Which going into it, I feel like I was gonna enjoy her already because I just I just enjoy her so much in Fargo, which I watched recently. Um, I'm seeing a ton of stuff recently. Jerry Maguire, Fargo, <laughs> you know, catching up. But um, it's all full circle. Full circle. They all come together. But I also loved uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and this, I, to me, he was my favorite part of the movie, even though it was like little smart, small parts. I knew that he just kind of had to keep reminding you like, oh, this is this is where we're going with this. And I kind of enjoyed that. And I loved all the rock and roll like name drops. I was like, did he just say he got Robert Plant's like autograph? I was like, <laughs> all right, cool. That's awesome. But um, I just thought it was a fun movie. And I, I, I really enjoyed it on our artistic side, too. But see, but you don't have the connection to this music that Alex has. I don't have it yeah. either. I yeah. mean, I, I can listen to the soundtrack and be like, oh, most of these songs, they, they're good, but I don't have any memories attached to them other than, yeah. oh, they're an almost famous. If there was a little more Led Zeppelin, if there was more like a little bit more of those songs in there, I think I would have been a little more attached. But like Black Sabbath, I don't know them hardly at all. Like I, I just found out like Ozzy Osbourne was the lead singer of that <laughs> band, like how, however long ago. But I... uh Oh, The Who. Yeah, I don't really know them that much. So, like, Elton John in a little bit. So, you know, very select moments. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. This is like rock and roll. But yeah, the my sister watched, like I said, and like the first Simon and Garfunkel song they played. We were both just singing along. I was you like, guys, oh. you both like during the whole movie, <laughs> I felt so uncultured. I was like, wow, they know the, everything. I was like, what's happening? Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I can sing along to Tiny Dancer and probably that's it. <laughs> yeah. I've always, ever since I saw this movie, I've always wanted a spontaneous moment where me and a group of people bust into Tiny Dancer. <laughs> On a bus. <laughs> it has not come to fruition at this point, though. Um, Julio, before we get into the next point, we'll talk about Patrick Fwiggett here. Upon your second viewing, and it's probably been at least, what, 10 years since you saw it? Almost 20, because okay. I, I saw it when it came out in okay. theaters, and that was it. D does it hold up? Is ago. it better than you remembered? Uh, I like it better now, but my main problem, and I teased this at the end of the Crossroads episode when I told you I have a problem with it and listeners of Contrarian's Corner would have figured out by now maybe and that is that I don't like Patrick Fury. <laughs> I was about to say that he's going to be the next topic of discussion. I'll be honest. I, yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait for the next topic. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, I don't hate him but I think I that he's the weak link here. Uh, Which but, is surprising. Yeah, I mean, because he's supposed to carry a movie but at the same time I may be just asking for too much from a kid. I mean, I don't know how old he was during the... He when looked they were older than 15 but definitely so young. Yeah. Uh but the movie itself, I mean, apart from Patrick Fugit, which we'll talk about momentarily, mm -hmm. uh, I like it. I, I don't have that connection with the music. I mean, much like Kinsey, I most of these songs, you know, are are just almost famous songs for me, not lifelong songs. Uh, but I think that uh, what the movie is trying to say about about the music business in a very like 
sweet way because i do i mean i think there's something to what i was saying and contrarian's corner and to what some of the critics say here whereas they're saying okay well that's cameron crow putting all his roast tinted glasses and just telling your story of rock and roll and it's like yeah but nobody throws like a tv out the window or the it's hotel not the or, dirt right it's not the dirt it's not pink floyd's the wall or but whatever you know, that, that was that culture was a bit different in the 70s than it became in the 80s Right. People but, weren't fucking doing massive coke binges in the 70s. But this feels a little too sweet to be true. And I think yeah. that 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 probably bothered me less, actually, the first time I watched it than it did now. Now I think that I'm a little more cynical. And I was like, especially when the whole point of the movie is to say, you need to be ruthless with these people. And then you want to say, well, but they're actually, okay, so they cheat on each other. But they're not... They're not horrible to the point where you would do an expose on this band. And it's like, what's the worst thing you can say about them? That they bicker mm-hmm. like yeah. like they're related. Yeah. You know? Uh, what they do to Penny is horrible. But it's at the same time part of a system that she's fully aware that exists. She knows. She had to know. It was right. You know? She knows that Russell has a wife slash girlfriend. And she knows how the other groupies band-aids are treated so it's you know there's it's nothing nothing terrible nothing horrible happens to where do you feel like william really needs to make this decision and that's fine the movie doesn't need to be like we said in contrast corner uh uh harmony korean movie <laughs> oh you know Hello. yeah I, I didn't want it to be <laughs> yeah so that's fine yeah, I, I think that that's i could say hey i wanted it to be grittier but then that kind of misses the point of the kind of movie that cameron crow wanted to make he wanted to make a love letter to those to that experience those experiences he had when he was a kid and that's fine and what uh, was the what was the Al- alan rickman movie where it was the grunge rock and roll movie it was like the do you remember do you remember what it was it was it took place and it took place in this one city and alan rickman was like a, a bar owner and it's where a ton of bands cbgb yeah cbgb it kind of gave me like the same vibe as that but they weren't trying to be as grunge like you said they were trying to get the other side of rock and roll like the earlier phases before rock and roll became like kind of grungy like that which i kind of liked you got to see i like, never heard of it cbgb i i enjoyed it what there blondie came out of cbgb it was like this little bar but um it's like a totally different set of rock and roll does Alan rickman sing in this movie uh, he's just like the bar owner he's you're like, familiar with cbgb Nope. Com- from I know CVS. There's <laughs> a club in New York, like the it's kind of where the Ramones got their start and whatnot. And yeah, Ramones was the other one. Yeah, that would have been about six or seven years after the timeline of this movie, though. Back when it was free love, completely unrelated. One of the best lines in Hot Tub Time Machine is uh, Rob Corddry going, "Come on, guys, it's the fucking '80s, free love." <laughs> and Clark Duke, "That's the '70s, you dipshit." Um. So, yeah, I mean, you keep associating the music and my attachment to that. That is true. That is strong. I think uh, subsequent rewatches of this in recent years for me, I see a lot of myself in this movie is a big part of why I associate with it so much with, you know, my thing with wrestling of like the things and opportunities I've been afforded to travel and see and like interact with wrestlers and stuff like that. And on the level of this movie, because again, like he's not associating with Bowie or black Sabbath. It's kind of this lower tier band Mm -hmm. and the experiences I've had with like independent wrestlers and like the stories I have. And 
I see a lot of that in here and how fortunate I am to have gone through that in my early 20s and my youth and whatnot. And also just like I completely forgot until I watched this that uh, every, the first time I saw this was probably 14. Every time ever since I've seen it, every hotel I go to, I take the do not disturb sign. So like, <laughs> I can be like uh, William when he gets back to his room. So there's a lot of uh, youth based attachment and also like growing into it. So this is a really special movie to me. Um, now, with that all being said, I can definitely poke holes where holes need to be poked. And I think the biggest present hole is Patrick Fuggett. And um, <laughs> But do you know what? And before we start tearing on Patrick Fuggett, <laughs> I, he, you said some holes don't need to be poked, though. That's the thing. No. And you said something in Contrarian's Corner that I don't know if you were kidding or not, but is very true. He walks such a fine line of you can't tell if it's bad or if he's just young. Like he's yep. and it's and that's a really easy thing to when I love it, I can just be like, yeah, he's just playing a young emotional kid. Yeah, the problem is that when you get towards the end of the movie, then you can tell. When he has the big moments, the 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 big the one with Penny and the one with uh with Russell on the plane, I just it just sounds tilted. The one on the plane more so, when he's yelling at Penny, probably because I probably I probably acted something out like that when I had my first girlfriend my junior year of high school. I am dark and mysterious. <laughs> but yeah, the plane. I think yelling. the problem is that he's also surrounded by people that are just acting on another circles level. around him. Yeah, yeah. and it's it, it, you know the the complexity of what's going on uh, with Kate Hudson and with uh, Billy Crudup in the scenes where he's. Where, where Patrick Fugue is supposed to be acting, mm-hmm. you know, they just, they completely upstage him. It, so. it checks me out a little bit because I, I, I was kind of hoping, like, you know, he'd be on Kate Hudson's level whenever she was crying. And I was like, I kind of want that emotional, you know, side from Fugit as well. But Yeah, he sounds scripted in a way that nobody else does. Yeah. And and so that takes me out of the movie. I mean this It does, yeah. And it I know I remember it happening at, when I watched it the first time because I really I was so pumped for this movie and I remember liking it a lot and then walking away kind of feeling ah, man, I wish I liked him a lot more because that you know didn't quite work for me. And this time I I enjoyed it a lot more and I can give him props because it's not like he sucks all throughout. I mean, no, there's some great scenes. Yeah, he has some really good stuff and I I, I really like him uh, in in a lot of scenes, but his big moments, I think that's when he falters a little bit and and takes me out. But yeah, it's only the big moments for me. Yeah, but then the thing is, this was the first movie. This was the first thing he ever acted in. Wow. And uh, I mean, and to me, that makes it even a little more impressive to certain scenes, so like comedic, uh, you know, the comedic lines that he had, the way you have to deliver them for them to come off like as funny mm-hmm, to match mm-hmm. everyone else in the tone of the movie. I feel like that's really impressive. I feel like delivering a comedic line at the right moment is kind of impressive. Yeah, I think that when it's when the movie needs him to be funny, he he nails it. He There's does. a lot of like funny reaction shots that, that he gets Yeah, yeah. Uh, when uh, Russell is on the roof being a golden god yeah. and you keep cutting back to him and that, that's funny. Well, and also like his uh, when Russell tells him, you know, we meet people on the road that it's fine for some people to know about but not like a million. The, the re, like him processing and understanding what he's saying and then, oh yeah, okay, that that's good too. And yeah. like from an acting perspective after he loses a virginity and he just breaks down crying in the hotel, uh, that's good too. Yeah, yeah. The in Like I said, some holes don't need to be poked. No. In the sense that I can tell you that that didn't work for me, but that's because the movie, the movie had me, but they didn't have me anywhere near as hard as they had you. Mm-hmm. So that's why the 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 point of the soundtrack, I think, it was so important because you have an even like stronger attachment from the beginning. So you can blaze past 
a slightly weaker performance from the lead because there's a lot more that's going on that works for you. And with me, it's like it's working, but I just can't get past it. Well, even pros and cons, his performance is, I think, a, a, a bag of mixed nuts in terms of there's moments of greatness, some moments of teetering, some moments of eh. Uh, at the same time, man, by the standards of 2000, you wouldn't say you were throwing him in there with a, you know, into a shark tank, but definitely from like viewing it from today's lens, he was in there with people way outside of his pay grade. And I think he does his best to hold his own. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Francis McDormand, Phyllis Seymour Hoffman, Zoe de Chanel. Well, <laughs> I think she's okay. Uh, she's, I don't think that the script requires her to be no. anything more than okay. She did what I needed her to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just talking about people that know what they're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh, I think Kate Hudson, and maybe this is also, I think Kate Hudson is great, and therefore I resent him a little bit because she deserved better. Like a better, <laughs> a better foil, you know, in those in those scenes. I think that she's great, and. Uh, I guess I still don't know how you feel about her performance here. It's amazing. It's okay. It's Cameron Crowe's finest hour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I don't. <laughs> That's such a, you're taking away the credit from Kate Hudson and giving it to Cameron Crowe. Are you going to, are you going to look at me and tell me I'm wrong in well, the 20 I, years since this movie? Has it not been proven that I think, it I think may it's not a, have been her? I think it's a confluence. No, I think it's her. But I think that obviously it's him too. I okay, mean, so yeah, that I don't mean to downplay her because still she had to get up there and deliver the lines and do all that shit. So yeah, part of the credits there. It's lightning in a bottle because she has not sniffed anything to that level since then. But even I, I think inside me, which I do enjoy, she's still like she acts like she's in a Broadway play in that movie. I think that it, and I know we mentioned it with somebody else. It might have even been Kate Hudson uh, when we interviewed her. <laughs> yeah, last time we had her on on the show. Uh, that I think that there's a difference between not being a good actress and picking shitty movies to make. So I think that she just has a bad track record of picking. But there's been movies. so much time since then that we would have seen something that showed like promise or something. I'm like a that. Bride Wars fan. Yeah, there you Is go. That the one with Anne Hathaway. Yeah, I you think know, she she gives she gives me some fun times in that movie. I, I would be interested, and I almost feel like I said this last time that we discussed this. I would be interested to find out uh, if there's any role that has been offered to her that has even an inkling of the complexity that she has here. Yeah, because the thing is, the character required an amazing performance, and she delivered it, mm -hmm. and then. Well, nobody else has asked this from her again. You know, it's like, uh, at least in the movies that I know her from, you know, uh, even, I don't know, I haven't seen Bride Wars, but I don't know that she's You'd required to. <laughs> There's a little bit more dynamic to her character. Really? It's like some love triangles and you, you kind of enjoy it. Well, she gets that Oscar scene in Something Borrowed where she finds out that Jennifer Goodwin's hooking up with her husband. Oh. I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> she's just, she's been stuck in rom-com hell i guess in a way that it's just i feel like it's squandered talent mm -hmm. uh and that's but that's great because i mean she's make at least she's making a living so here's yeah. what i ask cameron crow makes another movie with kate hudson and we see what happens well yeah but even then you could say again oh it's cameron crow no what we need to see is no to see if we can re because he's as low right now as she is after fucking aloha so <laughs> like 
And, and again, both of them have more money than I will ever dream of. But it's just right. Like, this thing here, I am criticizing Kate Hudson's career, and she could just like buy me and sell me twenty oh, times over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she's, she's happy. She's like, listen, it's a lot easier to make a rom com oh, with yeah, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who's largest? Wanted to make that rom com, <laughs> right. Matthew McConaughey. She's a gorgeous woman. She I've never seen a movie in it where she looks like. Let's get this over with. She's unhappy to be there. It's just it's such a fascinating thing that like. You talk to some people that would think it was like a joke that she was nominated for an Oscar just because of what the the cliche that she's become. But then you watch the movie, it's, you 100 percent oh, understand dude, why she yeah. was nominated. Told me that, and I was like, she was nominated for an Oscar. What, <laughs> dude? So good every time. It's just like more and more complexity to her character from the beginning, from the moment that she comes on and with her uh... walks out the gates of heaven with her <laughs> flowing Liberace robe. It's all happening. Um. Yeah, she's just unbelievable in this movie and, and, you know, a career's worth of goodwill from this because I talk to people like, you know, you and me, uh, my buddy Reed, just people from our age bracket. And they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, my best friend's girl sucked, but she was amazing and almost famous. So You, <laughs> you can't take that away from her. No, ever. and it's something that everyone will just kind of give her the benefit of the doubt of like. Well, she's made no good movies since then, but hey, it might be as good as almost famous. So or that's the thing. I think more more interesting uh, then pairing her again with Cameron Crowe would be to just give her another part that's like Penny Lane and see if she can pull it off. Because if she can't, then you'd be like, okay, it was Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe unlock the box and figure out how to shape her performance. I just and, love the idea that he has access to this folder that no one else in the history of the <laughs> film industry has been able to access. <laughs> he just he figured out how to do it. I mean, the key was... Write her a compelling character. Who would have thought? Yeah. Pair with Lars, Lars Van Trier and we'll just see what happens How next. to get Kate Hudson an Oscar film. <laughs> uh, Frances McDormand nominated for an Oscar. Tale as old as time. I, I don't think we're breaking any ground by saying she's a fantastic actress. And she's great in the role. So, like, neurotic and whatnot. So great. Likeable. That's, yeah. that's really the hardest thing, I think, for me with that character would be that it's so easy to make her just really annoying. But and really... A two, like a very 2D like kind of character where you know she's just the mom that kind of tells you how to what what you have to do but she she's like a mom that teaches morals yeah and, and you like her you don't resent her in Contrarian's Corner I said that it annoyed me every time she interrupted the story but here yeah. I was she was like Philip Seymour Hoffman she's she's just funny every time she comes in and yeah. insightful and and I love every time she talks to uh the uh bandmate Russell I mm -hmm. I loved every time they had an interaction it was just so great they went off of each other so well. Yeah, at the end. So this is the famous Russell Hammond. <laughs> Come in. Um, There's still hope for you. Yeah. <laughs> There's hope for you yet, I think. Just what you said. Great, great stuff. Um, and then even just like the side, Zoe Deschanel and her performance is great. Jason Lee, I think, is the unsung hero of this movie. I think he has a lot of really good delivery in terms of comedic lines. And then also just he's so believable in that character like there's so many background players you can tell are just like dressed up like musicians from that time it's like i completely buy him as this character and like everything he's saying i believe uh that was something from my first viewing that didn't repeat this time which was disappointment at the fact that he didn't get more to do mm -hmm. i was a huge jason lee fan back when this came out because he was in all the kevin smith movies and, yeah. and i was like oh my god he's got a big part in a movie that's by someone other than kevin smith <laughs> yeah. and then he kind of played just 
he was still playing sort of the same type from the Kevin Smith movies. And so what I was hoping would be just an opportunity to see Jason Lee flex some different muscles. I, I didn't feel it. And this time I watching it, I did. I, I think that I was just expecting too much the first time. And yeah. this time he's he's fine. He's just the, the hero is Billy Crudup. And that's, I think that I was expecting the first time I watched it, I thought maybe Jason Lee was going to be more of the, the I main got character. I expected from Jason Lee, I think. And we talked about the hotness of Billy Crudup, but I mean, the actual acting, he's flawless in his performances, Great. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Is this like the best, not the hottest, but I'm talking about the best hashtag Billy Crudup? Hot Bill and hashtag best Bill. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I mean, his voiceover works fantastic. I know he's gotten more into that in the past few years. And that really, I mean, we've talked at, ad nauseum about Watchmen on this podcast and uh, I think his voiceover of Dr. Manhattan is really cool. Um, but yeah, I can't really think of anything else I've seen him in that I would put up with this. Well, I mentioned He doesn't earlier, get the but... same emotional dips as like uh, William and Penny, but he's funny, he's believable, and like his just delivery of his material is just on point. I think when he drops the facade and says just make us look cool mm-hmm. that is one of the best moments of the movie yeah. and it's just so believable and it's that's all on him that yeah. and then really the moment that gets me uh because i told you i haven't rewatched almost famous all the way through but the scene in the in the the bus that's like a classic that you can't help but watch every now and then mm-hmm. uh the uh Toby dancer Tony Danza. Tony Danza. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you know, like, that's that's actually, like, a common misconception. A lot of people think that the song is Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. Jesus. It's so common that there's a book about uh, misheard lyrics, and really? the book is called Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. Oh, I thought it's, you were just making a joke. No. I, I like, wish that was, like, something I came up with, but no, that's really, like, a lot of people think yeah. that that's the name I of the song. I was like, does he mean Tony Danza? <laughs> what is he saying? Yeah. But that scene ends with William saying, I need to go home. And then it's not even that it's great acting, but I think it's just uh, great filmmaking. The way that everything's staged and Penny Lane just like does that thing with her hand. And it's Magic like, dust. Yeah, yeah. And then like you are home. And yeah. it's just like so perfect. So and that's I guess that's full on Cameron Crowe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody else is doing their parts, even Patrick Fugit. But with, with that and Jerry Maguire, the, he with those two movies in particular, he was capable of making these moments that were like, oh, this is what elite filmmaking is like. <laughs> Uh, and then just kind of rounding out the here and there's of the cast, Jay Bruchel, charismatic whirlwind that he is. It's <laughs> I, I just, it's always great to see him. Uh, Anna Paquin, I mean, in a nothing role, but still just, hey, it's Rogue. I'm happy to see her. Yeah. yeah, I forgot that she was basically, I mean, the movie never makes a huge point of it, but I guess she is uh, Jason Lee's Penny Lane, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I'd forgotten about that because when we started the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, Anna Paquin is there for like five minutes. But no, she's there the entire movie. You just... In the background. Yeah. And then Jimmy Fallon, who this is like the the Tom Green and road trip rule <laughs> of this person is capable of great things comedically if you just parcel it out and don't overdo it. And that's my opinion. That's like road trip. Tom Green. Incredible. Uh, Jimmy Fallon here. Yeah, it's great. He just pipes in every once in a while, has a really funny line. See, this is one where I would give. Cameron Crowe, the, most of the credit. I mean, because I've seen Fallon in so many things where I know that he's the problem. Mm. Uh, where just people let him do what he wants. Uh, yeah, or where I just don't find him. I think that he's miscast. Like, uh, while we're not recording, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, Fever Pitch. Mm-hmm. And Fever Pitch doesn't work for me in part because I just don't think he can carry it. He's he's the leading man there, and he just he's just not charismatic enough for me. That's, yeah. Uh, 
I don't even like his talk show. <laughs> but 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 you can use him properly. And here they give him a small character, but I think he's great. Yeah. Uh, he has my favorite comedic line of the movie when the plane's going down. He's the first one to admit like a transgression or a sin. I once hit a man in Dearborn, Michigan. Just hit him and kept driving. I don't know if he's alive or dead. Not a day goes by that I don't see his face. <laughs> and everyone's just like, what? Great delivery. In that scene, too, kind of bringing this all home, the big comedic payoff for that is the drummer, his one and only line of the movie, admitting that he's gay, and then everyone just looking at him, and then this guy clears up. Uh, it's, I guess, uh, the biggest compliment I can make about this movie, and you know, we joke about all the time, well, you couldn't do that today. I think there's things in this that we've pointed out that under today's microscope, people would vilify and people freak out over a lot of these things yeah but my the best compliment i can pay to the movie is it portrays all these things it shows all these things it shows you know the them deflowering him as a group the quaaludes kiss this whole the punchline being that he's gay which obviously that to me it's more about just that's the only thing he says in the movie that makes it funny not the fact that he's a homosexual but it does all these things without beating you over the head with the well it was the 70s this is how it was it just it's this movie that's presented this is the story we're telling yeah take it or leave it it feels it feels true definitely the, the flowering feels true to the to the period the the i'm gay part felt more to me like a joke that was like made into in the 2000s mm -hmm. and then put in the time period it's not terrible i but i think that there's like funnier stuff happening there especially once you consider that it opens with jimmy fallon admitting to almost killing a man potentially having killed a man i think so, if that's the case it was just inserted for laughs i feel it was done well and you know not the the next scene he's making out with a dude like just to beat you over the head with it <laughs> oh, yeah. type thing so something that was actually funny to me in that scene was that the pilot comes out and he goes we're actually alive because he, <laughs> he knew they were probably gonna die so <laughs> that's true he like he opens the door and so i was like oh there so was happy. no chance he just said that to <laughs> make the film above we're gonna make it uh but yeah i think that that's always annoys me when people you don't have to watch this movie and make excuses for it oh that's how it used to be it just is like this is just the story that the movie tells that yeah. type of thing there's too many movies and i think facets of art now i think more so than the sexual side we're talking about this really falls with like racial terms and things like that which you know people well, that's how it used to be the confederate flag thing people are too quick to make that argument and i feel like this movie's strong enough that you don't need to defend it that way well yeah because it's... obviously there's no racial tension in it or anything like that but yeah i don't think there's a there's black a, person i was about to say there's not a single black person this movie there's defines. one in the beginning brushing his hair and oh I, yeah. yeah 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 when they're in the bathroom and yeah, he's right? like why is everyone so much bigger than i am or something <laughs> yeah this movie is grade a white people shit i'll tell yeah. you what <laughs> rock and roll yeah yeah when you're when the main problem in your life is that you were touring with a rock band and your mom wants you back <laughs> so just, you okay graduate high school yeah lord almost famous my god uh and then i guess we gotta put this on it uh because we've been talking about the road trip how does it hold up as a road trip movie Okay, so obviously best soundtrack so far. Oh, and yeah. probably I doubt the Wild Hogs is gonna you know surpass it. So uh, I told you, even not being super familiar with the songs, they just they're just so well placed, and that's that Cameron Crowe thing. Obviously, uh, as far as no uh, karaoke though, no karaoke, but well, you do you have a sing along. Yeah, yeah. You have a, that's that's the next best thing. Uh, you have. Uh, 
a fairly distinctive vehicle. You have a, what's it, Doris? Mm -hmm. Name of the tour bus. It doesn't break down. Could have used a breakdown scene where, like, one of them has to walk two miles to get gas or something. Right. Uh, Lots of stops, but no landmarks. Mm -hmm. Right? We didn't get the Grand Canyon. No, uh, no, no. I think I was a little confused sometimes as to where they were. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I remember uh, to pick up because they make such a big deal about it at the party. But then, other than that, and and you get the names of the locations yeah. every time they're there. But it just it didn't. I guess it didn't resonate as it's much. Like as... Greensville, Tennessee. Yeah, I think Crowbar was just like one of the more obscure cities that I can make <laughs> seem interesting. Yeah, uh, uh, Duluth, Georgia. Yeah, but they do cover a, a fair amount. Of, I was going to say Tupelo, Mississippi, but that's where they end up uh, with the. After the plane almost crashes, they go to the Tupelo airport. Oh, yeah. So. As a road trip movie, also good. <laughs> I was going to say. Not great. As a uh, film, fantastic. As a road trip movie, I think Crossroads still in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was Almost Famous. Up next on the Contrarian Summer Road Trip, we're going to drop Kenzie off up north and uh, <laughs> hop on our hogs and join Travolta, Martin Lawrence, William H. Macy, and um, Tim Allen, right? Tim Allen, My yes. My God. <laughs> What a foursome there. A foursome. Have them deflower William Miller. <laughs> <laughs> God. That's that the R-rated version of... Uh, fuck. Almost Famous is not even like a good name for that thing. Uh, it would be... <laughs> Almost like, Legal. <laughs> I was going to say, Used to Be Famous. <laughs> used to be... Yeah. That's what will... That's the working title of Wild Hogs. Wild Hogs was 3. Once Famous. Uh, Kinsey, we appreciate you being on the podcast once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I'm glad to watch Almost Famous now. I can now you can say, say that you watched it. You can yeah. Another Philip Seymour Hoffman movie I've seen. I actually saw one last last week or the week before. It was Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes, he was so so good in that. He gave me chills like every time he'd say something creepy or or well anything towards Matt Damon where he's like I'm on to you. <laughs> I caught uh, Long Came Polly on TV not too long ago, and that's such a dumb movie, but God, he's hilarious. He's great. He's the best part of the movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, winding down here, as always, our plugs. Uh, the festive years provide our opening and closing tracks. Opening track is Last Stand, closing track, Summer of 99. Julio, I'm like one for seven in pronouncing. Uh, Hans's last name, Hans, Hans Rothgeeser. Rothgeeser, you got it. Okay. You got it. Uh, yeah, he did our logo. He... Uh, you can reach him on Twitter at Mil Demonios. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, he has a podcast called Nación Combi. You can listen to it. Uh, if you know Spanish, they talk about Peruvian stuff. Uh, if you speak English and not Spanish, he also has a podcast called Living in Peru. You can listen to that one in iVox. Uh, it's about immigrants in Peru. Uh, the opposite of what I am. Uh, he also has a webpage where he keeps all the stuff that he's written. Uh, Mildemonios.pe. PE stands for Peru. And yeah, if you need comics, you need uh, logos, you need to just talk to a Peruvian that's not me, just hit him up. <laughs> Kinsey, do you, have you watched or listened to or seen anything or read anything recently that you'd like to plug to the... Preferably not Please. starring anybody that's blacklisted by Hollywood right now. Hey, I can't make any promises. That was after. <laughs> that's I, true. Who literally knows? the week of that I made the biggest Kevin Spacey plug of my life. But... Didn't we put a disclaimer on it? I don't remember if I, if I put it on. And definitely not the audio, but I might have put it yeah. on the description. Might, maybe. Yeah, that was fantastic. But uh, I mean, there was endorsed. no way Yeah, you could have uh, foreseen that. But anything you've seen recently? Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to keep talking more about The Talented Mr. Ripley because <laughs> it's on my mind. Um, I actually, I watched it recently, 
And um, I, I, I'll give spoilers for anyone who's watching. Big spoilers coming up. Something that's on my mind about that movie was I uh, was so disturbed by the murder scene with Matt Damon and Jude Law. I've seen a hundred murder scenes, you know, in movies before, you know, and it's nothing new to me. But for some reason, I this this murder scene was so like disturbing that I was like, what am I watching? And I just like had to talk about it. I was like, this is so crazy because he's just like this disturbed guy. And I was like, are they lovers? Do they hate each other? Do they like each other? And then Matt Damon like kills him like really brutally and he's fighting for his life. And I was like, this is a disturbing movie, but it was really cool. <laughs> Have you seen it, Alex? A long time ago. I was going to say, sorry, what she just spoiled <laughs> a big point. In the well, movie. the well. thing for, for the movie is, you know, it's going to happen. It like, it's happens maybe like the first 30 minutes but mm -hmm. it's the setup towards that and you know it's gonna happen but it's like when is it gonna happen and then like how is it gonna happen it's a really disturbing death scene but it's it's something that you should check out because i'm not gonna spoil the rest of the movie though because what happens after that's probably the important part uh that has another uh great karaoke scene it's not quite necessary karaoke but when they sing that song in italian yeah 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 the in the club uh -huh. yeah <laughs> yeah that that was what i remember the most uh, the first time i watched it because i i think uh, uh jude law got nominated for that movie and i want to say that they used that part of his oscar clip when did he's really? singing yeah i think so he was he was really great in that movie i was just so uh i don't even know what the word is i was just so impressed i think because yeah. well, it's also I, hashtag hashtag hot law <laughs> hashtag hot law and he knew it too which yes. is so annoying um and now his son is the guy he's his son in real life is kind of like the guy he is in the movie he's just like a bachelor that goes all around the world does whatever he wants causes trouble but which i thought was kind of funny i didn't wasn't. know jude law had a son yeah he looks exactly like him it's kind of freaky but passing um, the gene jade law <laughs> I forgot what his name is. It's a funky name. It's a celebrity name. Jaden Law. Jaden Law. That's uh, Orange County. That's one of the movies. His illiterate high school English teacher list is inspired by William Shakespeare. Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am so just absolutely discombobulated with the sequence we've been recording in, so I don't know what's going to come out when, <laughs> that I'm just going to say, being that... Jay Baruchel graced us with his presence. If you haven't watched Un Undeclared, just get on that. Watch Undeclared. I thought you were going to plug... Uh, Goon? No. Goon's what, also fantastic. What is that movie where he's supposed to be a three and, and that girl's supposed to be a ten? And You're just not that into me? Is that it? He's no. just not that into you? No, 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 no. There's a movie that's like... It's, She's out of my league? Yes. Okay. She's uh, out of my league. Oh, an actual right. An actual Jay Baruchel vehicle. That's on Netflix I've right never now. seen that. I know he's... Remember he plays the badass in uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? Right. I'm thinking of Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nicolas Cage. That's another Jay Baruchel vehicle. Like Watch Undeclared. <laughs> don't bother with the movies. Yeah. The movies don't know how to exploit him. No. It's never been better than in uh, Knocked Up. God, he's really good in that. He's good in Goon. He's too much in Goon, though. But yeah, Undeclared is peak most of those people involved. Uh, well, much like uh, last time we recorded, I still don't have... I've been just buried under stuff that i have to watch not stuff that i want to watch um so so i haven't been able to watch something that i would recommend but tonight after i get home alex mm -hmm. i get to rewatch the 2011 muppets nice. uh, with jason siegel because Classic. tomorrow night we're recording uh with uh sam hurley from movie reviews and 20 cues 
and it's going to be awesome. So I am preemptively plugging our episode for movie reviews and 20 Qs, uh, and already know that the Muppets is an awesome movie. Oh, so, God, yes. uh, I don't know if I told you, uh, a couple of years ago, Jason Siegel was here to, to host, uh, to present like a screening of the Muppets for the Austin Film Festival. And he stuck around for a QA after. It was great. It was just, it, I mean, the movie's great. And then having him have a very candid conversation about just the movie and how they made everything was, was even better. Uh, so I love the movie and, now I have to like watch it again and answer silly questions about it. So it's, it's, I look forward to that. Yeah. Uh, also, I guess I might as well plug parenthood. I will never have a kid, never plan to have a kid, but our friend Sam and his wife Stacy from that oh. podcast, they just had a kid and, uh, it's official. I saw the announcement on Facebook so we can talk about it without have thinking that parenthood? we're. Uh, oh, I'm talking about Parenthood, like in real life, not Parenthood the movie, which I is also you were great. About Parenthood the movie. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. That movie's great. Yeah, this movie is great. I like the TV show too. Well, congrats. Congrats, congrats. Sam. Yeah. Congrats, Sam. <laughs> uh, that concludes this episode of The Contrarians as we are almost to our final destination of The Contrarians summer road trip. Our next episode will be Wild Hogs. Yeah, we just got a flat. So, like you said, we're going to drop Kinsey off and then just hop on some motorcycles. And. Had to shack up with our old pal John Travolta. If it's anything like last summer, it's going to be one hell of a ride. So we do appreciate y'all tuning in to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you for Wild Hogs. Do you watch Sons of Anarchy at all, Mattis? I uh, used to, yeah. Um, Actually, uh, so lately, the target that I work at, or worked at, since I'm moving, but um, the the actor, there's an actor from Sons of Anarchy who I've seen probably like four or five times now that comes in there, and uh, he actually gets his haircut with Jordan, and um, it's Theo Rossi, the one who kind of like turns bad towards the end. Do you know which one, which mm-hmm. one I'm talking about? And so uh, I'm making him some coffee yes for americano and i knew his name was theo but i just asked him any i was like oh what was your name and he goes oh theo so i was like okay making him his coffee and i i say you do a little bit of acting don't you (laughs) (laughs) he goes he goes what do you recognize me from and then i said sons and then he was like you should check out luke cage so if there was anything else i was gonna plug i'll say luke cage because he's in luke cage he's in luke cage apparently and um apparently cloverfield we talked about that a little bit but i remember him in cloverfield the first cloverfield yeah, the original, not not the Lane one, but uh, which I I'm not saying I hate that one. I like that one a lot. But well, now I have to watch Luke Cage. Now I have to watch Luke. Pressure's Cage. Pressure's on. Yeah.